Welcome once again to the Altered Attitudes podcast, the podcast that delves into the realms of addiction, recovery, and the transformative journeys that lie within. Today, we have an incredibly inspiring and heartfelt conversation lined up. In this episode, we're honored to be joined by Claire Kendi, CEO and founder of Kendi Street Recovery, and dedicated wife to Kevin Kennedy, who many may know as Coronation Street's Curly Watts. Claire's story is one of strength and resilience, as she found herself in the challenging role of a spouse to a celebrity battling active addiction. It was through her experiences and Al-Anon meetings that she discovered her own path to recovery and understanding of her own problems with drugs and alcohol. This shaped her into an invaluable voice in the realm of addiction and recovery. Join us as we uncover the strength and resilience required when the world of addiction collides with the world of the spotlight. This episode is hosted by our very own Lester Morse with special guest Claire Kendi. Let's begin. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of our Autos Attitudes podcast. Today we have Claire Kennedy, who's the CEO and co-founder of Kennedy Street Recovery or Kennedy Street Foundation. You could probably explain that to a little bit better to us, Claire, as we go along. But um, Claire, I thought it'd be good to start with getting to know a bit more about you and your background and what kind of led you into um, being involved in recovery your personal story and kind of what led you to opening up um, your charity in Brighton. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where do you want me to start? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. That's very kind of you for inviting me to come and to talk about a subject that's close to my heart. Um, Well, it's everything, to be honest. So, um, yeah, so... I run um, a small charity in Brighton called Ken- Registered with the Charities Commission, but we operate by the name of Kennedy Street Recovery Hub, actually. We've just opened our very first recovery hub, which is very exciting. Just wondering for people that might not uh, know what a recovery hub is, what is a recovery hub? So we operate a little charity called Kennedy Street Recovery Hub, and the recovery hub is actually... It's it's a small building based in the, in Brighton, and it can be a recovery hub can be whatever the people that come to it want it to be, and it just so happens that our recovery hub it's a it's a, it's it's almost like a safe sober social space for people who are choosing to have sobriety as a lifestyle choice. So it's not fellowship specific, obviously, um, but lots of people from lots of different fellowships come here to socialise. We have different events at the weekend. We have sober karaoke night. That's happening this Saturday. We have sober open mic nights. We have sober comedy nights. What else do we do soberly? We do all sorts. But <clears throat> our charity was um, born out of um, my own experience. So... I started my recovery journey 28 years ago. I know I don't look old enough, Lester. That's what you're thinking. (laughs) Um, But I started my recovery journey 28 years ago. Um, I married an alcoholic. Um, I thought that was a good idea. I loved him dearly with all my heart. He's the funniest man you could ever wish to meet. I think we've been together for about 35 years. Um, my husband, I guess you didn't know he was um, an alcoholic when you married him. No, you didn't sort of go out <laughs> thinking I need to marry an alcoholic. No, I didn't. I didn't. But subconsciously, I think I was I was looking for somebody who 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 may have even been similar to me or maybe a bit worse than me, preferably. I know that now. 
but at the time when I was when I was in my youth, in my in my younger days, um, I met this lovely guy who just so happened to to be an actor who was working on Coronation Street. His name's Kevin Kennedy. Um, he portrayed a character on Coronation Street called Curly Watts. Um, who he was he played that character for twenty years. Um, he's still an actor. For those of you who were wondering what's happened to Kevin Kennedy, he's still an actor, and thanks God he's a sober actor today. So he's twenty five years sober today. It started before I met Kevin. I mean, I was a drinking alcoholic myself and a drinking uh, and an active um, cocaine user, um, and but I wasn't a daily user. So I thought I always perceived people to be addicted that use daily for my own convenience I thought oh well I'm not that bad but when I met Kev um, I met a kindred spirit um, I didn't know you know when you meet somebody and you I mean I'm I'm very attracted to people that make me laugh and Kevin is very very funny um, and obviously devilishly handsome as well so that really helped <laughs> um, and and he drank like a fish like me so you know it was like win 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 um and i'd just come back from saudi arabia i'd lived in saudi arabia for five years um drinking like a fish so for those of you who think you can't drink in saudi arabia that was a myth everybody drank in saudi arabia um and when i came back from saudi arabia i really wasn't in looking for a boyfriend or a partner um and i met kev on an april fool's night um, in Manchester where where he was working and I was living and that's where we're both from and uh, he was out drinking with I don't know if you remember Lester Alex Hurricane Higgins yes Do you he remember liked the to snooker drink player? sniff a coke I think yeah oh oh he liked to drink he did so Kev he looked was out like drinking a drug with alcoholic didn't he oh he was a real big he had a real big drink problem really big drink problem mm. And I'd known Alex for years before I met Kev, so I used to see him out on the circuit in town. Um, and he was one of those characters that, you know, he was always drinking, so you always said hello to him. You never know, knew what personality you were going to get when you spoke to him, but he was a, he was a really nice man, really funny guy as well. So um, he was with Kev and I gave Alex a wave. And that was the beginning of our beautiful started off as a friendship um we were drinking partners we'd go out meet meet up go out drinking um but i knew he fancied me i knew he fancied me and uh, so he pursued me at the time i was working in pr and marketing um i was a, a ferrari girl i promoted ferraris for a living on that occasion and i was working at the manchester motor show um and Kev just kept turning up at all the all the gigs I was working at, and you can imagine what it was like in those days. Kev was there was only four channels on the telly. Kev was in one of the biggest soap operas in the world. Twenty one million people watched the, the program, and then I'd be there um, trying to talk somebody into buying a Ferrari, and somebody'd come running in from the reception, going, "Oh my God, you're not going to believe who's here!" And I'd be like, "Who's here?" And she, Curly Watts off Coronation Street. So, yeah, he, he caused a stir wherever he went, bless him. Um, and he just was kept he trying, following me around, Was he trying to flog really. him a Ferrari, though? Uh, I think I 
sold him some tickets. We were doing a raffle. I think I think I got a, a fair few tickets out of him. I think I think I sold him about hundred quid with a Ferrari raffle tickets. We were doing a Ferrari a Ferrari raffle where we had five Ferraris to raffle off. Yeah. So and that was the beginning, really. And and I'm not going to lie, Lester, we had some fun. We really did have a lot of fun. Um, a lot of we travelled all over the world. You know, having lots of fun, but drinking and drugging was always played a big, big part. Um, and neither of us were that bad yet. I mean, you know, we we were bad enough to know that it was, you know, causing a problem. But it it hasn't it hadn't started ripping chunks off us yet. Either of us, Kev's about ten years older than me, um, so he he sort of progressed a lot faster than me. And obviously, I wasn't I wasn't drinking. Um, doing any morning drinking Kev quite quickly progressed to morning drinking so as a as a, I guess you're both um, sort of successful as well which is one of the key things I guess people look at that if you're being successful and got money and paying your bills then you're probably and yeah. I guess there might be an element of living the celebrity lifestyle that it all looks quite like on top of the world that, sort of thing and- yeah, people sort of say, oh, was you a high-functioning alcoholic addict? Do you know what? At the end of my drinking and using, there was no high-functioning about it. I was literally gripping on by the by my fingernails to, to get through the day. You know, I, OK, I'd got a job. I was doing it really badly. You know, Kev was still on telly. He was performing in front of millions of people. He was just about keeping it together. I mean, there was no... I I always laugh at that statement, high-functioning, you know. But the fact of the matter is, is a a, a question that's... I think more along the lines, Claire, you know... Sorry, you know in the AA book where there's a bit that Bill Wilson says, and I think, I mean, I recognise that, where you, you sort of get that point where you feel like you've arrived in life, but then, then it starts to go downhill, but... um. You know, you do reach that point where you you feel like you've got it all. You might be do drinking, you might be doing cocaine, but you you got money, and it just feels like I've succeeded at something in life. I've arrived. Did you yeah. did you have that moment? You think then? Oh yeah, I think from the very beginning I had that moment. I mean, from I started drinking at the age of about fourteen. I didn't take to drugs until about I was until about twenty five. Um, but as soon as I put a drink in me uh, as a teenager, a very insecure, sort of um, physically conscious um, young girl who didn't have very much self-worth. I grew up in a family where alcohol was like normalised. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so as soon as I put a drink in me at 14, I felt like Claudia Schiffner. I felt like I'd arrived then. It was it was it got me from the get. It really got me from the get-go. And I was the type of drinker that was an all-or-nothing type of drinker. So mm. I could do days where I didn't drink or use. I'd be hanging on by my fingernails at the end um, to get through those days. But I wasn't a daily drinker. Kevin was a daily drinker. And conveniently for me, he was much worse than I was at the end because he was drinking daily. I wasn't. so. Yeah, of course. He was drinking in the morning. I only drank in the mornings on holiday. So I thought that made me a better mm. sort of type of drinker. Um, but his yeah. now I know a lot about recovery. I, his illness had progressed a lot quicker than mine. 
you know so and mm. he was doing a lot of secret drinking um i was an out drinker i mean at the time it was pandemonium i i was very much focused on his drinking because i i knew he was dying because he at the end of his drinking he he, he he stopped getting malnutrition um he couldn't eat his face was starting to swell um you know, he, he looked really, really, really poorly. And I was still keeping it together. So every single doctor that we went to, when we did start to... What happened for us was, like I say, you know, we were successful. We we had good careers. We had money. People used to give us drugs, give us alcohol wherever we went. We never really paid for much, to be honest. Because when you're a celebrity, people want you there. Um, yeah. So... We went on a, a a lovely holiday. I thought it was going to be, you know, a real changing holiday for both of us. And we went to Barbados. Um, and like I said, we both worked really hard. <clears throat> and we took my mum and dad with us. And uh, it became quite clear quite quick that I had normalised Kev's drinking. And my parents had just sort of noticed it. And my mum was like, oh, my God, what's wrong with Kevin? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, why does he not come out of the room? And why is he just staying this beautiful villa that we've hired? He's just staying in one room drinking. And what I was doing to cope with his drinking was going out drinking. <laughs> you know, so I was oblivious to his <laughs> drinking. It it was insane. My mum was there watching mm. him and she was like, Claire, I'm really worried about Kevin. So at the end of the holiday, I sat down with him and we had a big talk. Don't forget. Now, Lester, we're still not even looking at my drinking and using. We're very focused no, on him because he's... He's like, your drinking was normalised because he looked worse than you sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And he was visibly, like, dying. You could see that he was... Hmm. He wasn't eating. He, you know, he, 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 he'd go, like, five days without food and it, it'd become really, really poorly, really quick on holiday. Um, so when we come back off that holiday... <clears throat> Um, Kev, it, it suitably shook him enough to, for him to go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stop drinking. He'd said that a lot, he was going to stop drinking. And he meant it, he really did mean it. Um, but I was your typical codependent, dysfunctional wife of an alcoholic. I was on him all of the time. If you don't stop drinking, that's it, I'm leaving you. You know, and I used to say that maybe five times a day. I never left him. So... Um, um, what happened, this was the very beginning of of this moment of clarity, this window of opportunity that was presented to us, was we came back off that holiday and we went for a walk the next day and Kev needed to go to the bathroom urgently. And I turned around and he'd gone. And, I'm, and we were in this little village where we lived and it was like a busy road. And I turned around and I didn't know where he'd gone. Anyway, I crossed this road and Kev was on the floor having a seizure and I didn't know. I'd never heard of an alcoholic seizure. I'd never heard that there was such a thing. I thought I thought he'd fallen over, hit his head and had a seizure because of him hitting his head. And now in retrospect, you know, you know, when you know that God's all over this this journey, there was a guy stood over him and he said to me, <clears throat> Um, as he had a drink today. And I was like, no, he has not getting all protective. And he went, no, it's all right, love. It's all right. He said, I'm a recovering alcoholic. He said, and I work in this sector. And there was a, you can imagine Curly Watts having a seizure on the floor. There was about 
we've now got 100 people around us. And I looked up, and this guy's telling me about, like, what he does for a living. And I looked up, and there was a photographer, literally, just just there taking pictures with a tripod. And Kev had bit through his tongue, his glasses were off, his face was smashed in. And this guy's saying, that's the problem, he's not had a drink because he's an alcoholic. And I, obviously I was just outraged by what this man was saying. How dare you call my husband out? Who are you? This man was a recovering alcoholic. I met him later on. Um, in a meeting and he said I was the guy that tried to help you that day and obviously I had to apologise to him because I was calling him all the names under the sun for how dare he try and suggest that my husband was an alcoholic but that was the very beginning of the secret being out and this photograph that this photographer took it went global you it went worldwide. just to be clear that to people that you you knew he was an alcoholic but you were 100% didn't want anyone else to know that he was an alcoholic. I, in my head, didn't want him to be an alcoholic. I desperately didn't want him to. Be. If he'd have said to me, Claire, I'm a mass murderer, I probably would have preferred that. The shame and guilt I felt about being married to an alcoholic was insurmountable. And I can admit that today. But at the time, I didn't want to be married to an alcoholic. Because if he was an alcoholic, Lester, what did that make me? And and this is where I was. I was very much still what very deluded. What did that deluded. make you, just out of, in, just out of interest? Well, I know you know the answer. alcoholic, because I, I drank... Think, yeah, because I think that would be a, a lot of people... I drank just like in, him. Yeah. And you, so I you drank just denial. like him. Yeah. I was massively in denial. And as a family member, I was also in denial about having uh, an alcoholic husband. Um, I didn't want an alcoholic husband um, because of the shame and guilt. But I also subconsciously, I didn't want um, Kevin to be an alcoholic because ultimately, if he was an alcoholic, what did that make me? And I was very much a drinking alcoholic. I didn't drink like Kevin, but I was definitely definitely drink dependent and had tried many many times to stop drinking but couldn't stop and stay stopped i would swap drink and drugs so i would stop uh, stop drinking alcohol and then start smoking weed and then I'd get myself into a state where i'd be thinking i'm addicted to weed so i'd stop smoking weed and i'd go back to wine and soda and then i'd stop drinking wine and soda and i'd start just doing cocaine and weed do you see what i mean i would in the big book, they talk about swapping our drink and, you know, in my case, swapping my drugs to keep me in the delusion that I somehow had control of my addiction. Um, and, and I think marrying Kevin was part of my addiction too. I think I was addicted to him being addicted to something because he was a big distraction. Being married to an alcoholic is a full-time job. So I was very much focused on him and his drinking and drug use rather than my own. Being, being, I guess even that sort of comes to mind is that you kind of get enablers of alcoholics, but they're not generally alcoholic yeah. themselves. And I, I guess you'd be surprised, sort of Both of them things going on. <coughs> yeah. Excuse me. Um, I think you'd be surprised, Lester. In, in, in the, I've been helping people now in the community for 25 years. And in the years, that, and I worked specifically, I trained as an addictions therapist when I got into recovery. Um, and I did a lot of work with families. 
And it's very, very interesting when you do work with families and you, 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 you have to sit down and have those open, honest conversations with the loved ones. Because, at the, at, you know, if you've got an alcoholic and they're, you try, they're trying to get into recovery, they go into treatment or they go into AA meetings or however they get sober, if they're going to come home and their partner's going to be sat there with a big glass of Chardonnay and a couple of limes racked out on the table and a spliff in the ashtray, you can pretty much guarantee that that addict that's trying to get well is either going to relapse, want to relapse, or will have to remove themselves from the setting because they they can't be... In the early days, you know what it's like, Lester. In the early days, you can't be around drinking and drug-taking because it it triggers us too much um and 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 I, I didn't honestly i really did not acknowledge my drinking and drug taking until kevin had got a try like like i say he started it all started with this seizure he went into hospital this beautiful northern irish nurse said to me you need help and i was like how dare you i've not got a drink problem he said no i'm not talking about drinking he said i'm talking about you as a family member he said, did you know that there's a fellowship um, for family members affected by somebody else's alcoholism? And I was I was suitably scared enough to, to, to ask him what that fellowship was called. And he told me it was called Al-Anon, which is a 12-step fellowship for family members or friends of alcoholics. And, and Kevin was in this hospital being chased by the paparazzi now we've got like itv we've got me granada news we've got about 20 journalists outside the hospital trying to get photographs they had to put kevin in a burns unit to keep him safe um, because there was people traipsing in the halls of the hospital trying to get photographs of him and whilst he was in hospital i went to my very first Al-Anon meeting again Lester, I, I wasn't even thinking about my drinking or drug taking and not even featured because I was so focused on him. And I met a bunch of amazing people, wonderful, wonderful human beings who who had walked the walk before me. They'd got they were married to alcoholics and they were all at various stages of their own personal journey, but they were learning to live with um, with with alcoholism. You know, a lot of people I think, don't I think get as well. As far from as this. my understanding, Claire, correct me if I'm wrong, but but I think you know over my experience of working with families and partners of people in addiction, because I guess it's a bit different having a family member that you know you've got a kid who's sort of born into addiction. You didn't really choose them, but then the people that actually choose partners that. They don't often understand that they actually have a problem and often they are projecting all their problems onto this other person that if, they, if they're if they fixed, then I'll be okay. And then they may go to somewhere like Al-Anon and I find it's usually a shocker. But but you can see the difference in people that have been to Al-Anon when they start realising that they actually have a problem also. It's a revelation. It's an absolute yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> revelation. I oh, never, me? honest to, yeah, I couldn't, I, honest to God, I, I went wholeheartedly to these meetings hoping 
that they were going to tell me how to fix my husband. That's the only reason I went. I really didn't think I had any sort of problem. I thought, if <laughs> if I go to these meetings, they're going to tell me how to stop my husband drinking. That's, then I'll be all I, right. I'd say a lot, of the peop- a lot of the people that go to those meetings initially go with that in their mind. They're going to teach me how to stop my husband or stop my child or stop my loved one or my best friend from drinking. And do you know what happened? I, I kept, they, they, they encourage you to just keep coming back because it is a process of learning. And I kept going back and I, I, I went back for two years. So it, was, it wasn't a quick fix. It wasn't a case of, <clears throat> here's a book, read it, you're fixed. I went to Ellen for two years and I went for two years hoping, literally hanging on, hoping they were going to tell me one day what the magic solution was to stopping my husband drinking. And what they did say to me was, my sponsor, I had to get a sponsor. I had to go through the 12 steps. So the 12 steps are created by Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, they were when were they written, Lester? In 1933 or something? Or 1932 by Bill and Bob. Yeah, 33. Yeah. At least by the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. So, so Alanon used the same 12 steps, slightly, slightly tweaked. Um, like we we admitted we were powerless over our, our over our alcoholic, and that our lives have become. Or we admitted we were um, powerless over our affected other, and our lives have become unmanageable. So that's step one. And honestly, it was the greatest revelation for me because, <clears throat> for the first time ever, I had to acknowledge the part I played in my own life. Um, that's not easy for people, alcoholic... I don't think, is it? To 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 start looking at themselves and their part in it and what are they doing and like like you could say it can go all the way back to why did you even pick somebody like that there's something present in you that that attracted you to them yeah and mine get mine went back to being a little girl you know having a dad that drank alcoholically you know having somebody in your life that um you know he was a good dad. He was the best dad. He was my dad. But, you know, he drank, he drank, he never admitted to being an alcoholic, but he drank like, he used to go out and drink like 12 pints, 15 pints every night. He was a builder. You know, it was like a badge of honour for him. It was like, yeah, I can go out, I can drink 15 pints and I can drive home. You know, it was like, um, so, so there was days. a part of me. Yeah, good God. I don't know. I think he had to drive with one eye open. The amount of times that he'd come home with no wing mirror. Um, But again, growing up, that was normalised, you know. He'd say, where's your wing mirror, Dad? He'd say, I'm not got a bleeding clue. So it was, it was normalised. So, you know, marrying somebody who drank like that, it was normalised, it was normal. And I thought, even though I couldn't stop my dad drinking, maybe I could stop this man that I married drinking. Um. And it is a revelation. You know, there's a lot of people out there that don't realise family well, members I guess you don't think about others. the stopping drinking. Again, I think a lot of the time it's about controlling the drinking, isn't it? If you can just keep control of their drinking. So, you know, I think that stopping drinking, that that's kind of like the final revelation. I think that, again, people really struggle with in society. Uh, because again yeah. there's many years of just saying look just try and control the drinking and then that other person helps to control the drinking and 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 minimize the effects or you know even reduces the consequences or takes the consequences on himself so that that other person can hopefully regain control and drink 
drink normally. I think a lot of people go through that process before they come to that realisation. This has got to stop. Yeah. And some people can do that. Normal drinkers or what mm. I call problematic drinkers. You know, if, <clears throat> if, if their life is suitably short and... If the doctor says, you know, if you don't stop drinking, your kidneys are going to drop out or, you know, your wife mm. keeps saying, if you don't stop drinking, I'm going to leave you. That's it. I'm going to take the kids. Um, most problematic yeah. that's a, drinkers. That's a sufficient even a reason, b- isn't it? That, that yeah. we kind of look at it like I use that as the rule of thumb. If you're given a sufficient reason to stop or moderate, which would be something like you said there, and you can do that, then you're probably not an alcoholic. You may be a heavy yes. drinker, you may be a heavy drug taker, but you're not the alcoholic that he's talking about in the AA book. And, and I think that's the that's rule of right. thumb that we try and say to say to people that that, that yeah. um, rational mind or having the power or the ability to choose to stop or moderate, given sufficient reason, if that's not present, then, then you've got a real problem that needs professional help. Or, or not to professional you're going to need a program or some support you need help of some variety some you do variety, need help yeah. and <clears throat> and that's what they said to me in <clears throat> so i've been going to Al-Anon for two years and my awakening was happening i was starting to become aware who claire was why claire did what claire did and also what claire's issues were because obviously part of the 12-step pro program is about looking at yourself it's the very beginning isn't it it's like being accountable for for the life the life i've lived and to, to address the wrongs that i've done and to then have a new blueprint for living when we get into the latter stages of the 12 steps so don't matter where you do the 12 steps you're going to start to know yourself. So I started to become really super aware whilst I was going to Alan on that my drinking and drug taking wasn't normal. Um, I never went to Alan on drunk, but I would I would go stoned and um, I started to feel guilty about that. Uh, I started to have a conscience. You know, Kev's still in active addiction still at this stage. So Kev had had this seizure. He'd had this this moment where it had gone all over the world and he, he couldn't stop drinking. He just couldn't stop drinking. We'd been to see doctors. Doctors said he needs to stop drinking. We're saying, no shit, Sherlock. How does he stop drinking? <laughs> Nobody mentioned AA. Um, so he just carried on. He just carried on and he, he couldn't stop. I'm going to Alan on starting to become awoken um, starting to get woke and uh, I'm starting to realise my drinking is not normal and there was one fella that kept talking about his wife and honest to God Lester every time he talked about his wife and what his wife did when she was drunk and and drugged it's like he was talking about me and I remember turning to my sponsor at a meeting and two years in and I said to her do you know what? Every time that fella comes and he talks about his wife, I can't help but think he's talking about me. It's like it's like he's gone and spoke to Kevin and Kevin's told him some of the things I do when I'm drunk. And my sponsor used to sit knitting. She was a very old lady and she used to sit knitting in the meeting. I never actually thought she was paying me much attention, to be honest. You know what we're like. We like people to be very attentive when they're talking to us. Anyway, she put her knitting needles down and she said, how long have you been coming here now, Claire? So I said, like, I've been coming for two years. So she said, for two years, she said, you've pointed that finger at Kevin. 
and wanted to blame him, haven't you, for the way your life's turned out. She says, and what have you learned by coming to these meetings? So I was like, well, that the I've got to change. She said, yes. So every time you point that finger, she said, there's three fingers pointing back at you and one at the solution. She said, the only person's life you can change is your own and you can only <laughs> do it with outside help. And that, for me, was the greatest gift anyone's ever given me. And I pass that gift on on a mm. daily basis here. Yeah. Um, and she said, if you identify with that man's wife, that man's wife is an alcoholic. She said, if you're identifying with her story, she said, you need to go to some meet, AA meetings and get your shit together. She said, because if you're an alcoholic... Of course, you can come here to, to to address your family, your family illness. But if you're an alcoholic, you need to learn how to stop drinking. I was like, oh, God. So obviously, I, I was oh, devastated by the, that She got news. you on the duck, on the duck one, innit? You walk like a she, duck, you talk like a duck, you quack like a duck. You're a duck. And do you know what? It's horrible, man. I was quacking all the way to my first meeting. <laughs> and I hated her for telling me that. I really didn't. I was I was so resentful yeah. to this poor woman for telling me that that I might well she didn't basically tell me anything she basically told me what I just told her. Well, she's um, telling you you got to stop drinking as well. You don't want to hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to I went to my very first AA meeting, literally, literally praying that I didn't get any identification. I went for all the wrong reasons, Lester. My husband now at this point, three years later on, Kevin has had a, more seizures, more illness. Granada are now going, um, what's going on? I'd, I'd been into Granada and said, look, you know, it's not really, it's not real. They'd asked me, they'd invite me in for an audience. And I, I'd learned enough in Al-Anon to say to them, look, you know, it's not really my story to tell. You need to talk to Kevin. So what I what I did by accident with them was I, I embedded in them an opportunity for them to be really, really beneficial to Kevin when he did ask for help. So I, I introduced them to the intervention method um, and I said, look, you know, it's really up to you to speak to Kevin about this. But what I do suggest is that when he does ask for help, if God, please God, he does ask for help that you actually offer him some help rather than sacking him. Because they were going to sack him. Um, I said, if you sack him, he will die, probably, because he was really poorly. Um, I said, but if he does ask for help, he's not at that stage where he's asking for help yet, but if he does ask for help, I know I can't help him. That's what I learned a lot about in Al-Anon. I'm not the person to help him. But there are people that can help him. And there's AA, but... In some cases, some people do need to go into treatment. And Kevin, because he was so physically unwell, he did need to go into treatment. <clears throat> but he was still at that stage where he's not asking anyone. So I said to Granada, if he does ask for help, then if he can help him get, get into treatment. He'd already been into, uh, what was it called, turning point for five days, a five-day detox with street homeless people, which... With all the love in the world, they were amazing people. But can you imagine putting Curly Watts in a street homeless rehab? It was it was doing gigs yeah. every night. He was ringing me up saying, can you fetch yeah. me, me guitar in? I've got a gig tonight for the boys. So they were iconising yeah. him. And I was like, "What? Well, you're in there to learn to stop drinking. So that, that obviously didn't work. He came out and relapsed straight. And 
with with a real revelation, another revelation that actually I, I think I might be an alcoholic. And I came back to our apartment where we lived. We lived in a lovely apartment. We both drove, drove nice cars. So all of that myth around, you know, you have to end up on the streets, load of nonsense. And I found Kev unconscious and said, and, you know, he'd said that day he wasn't going to drink. And I got back and he was unconscious again, drunk. And my first thought was to go to the fridge to drink. And that little voice that I'd heard tonight in my in the AA meeting said to me, why don't we ring that lady you've just met? I'd met a lady at the AA meeting who'd give me a number. And I thought, OK, I, I know enough about recovery to know that I need to do things differently because my head's where the problem is. I learned that in al <clears throat> So I rang this woman up who had only just met at this AA meeting. And she said to me, I was ranting and raving, and she said, do, do you want help for you or for your husband? So I said, well, my husband's unconscious. So she said, there's nothing I can do about him. She said, did you come to the meeting tonight for you or for him? So I was like, really, you know, when somebody asks you a question and you think, did I go for him yeah. or did I go for me? And I, and I said, I, I think I went for me. And she said, OK, she said, I'm going to make a suggestion. We don't normally make suggestions like this you know, to people that are new. She said, but if you're an alcoholic and you came to your first meeting tonight and you got identification, if you stay in that home tonight, she said, the chances are you're going to drink. She said, is that what, that's what's happened in the past, isn't it? So I said, yeah. So she said, so my suggestion is get your bag, get your coat and get the fuck out of there. And she said, because for you to stay is for you to drink. And, you know, when somebody says things dead simply to you and you think, oh, my God, she, it's, it's, she's so true what she's saying. It's like people, when they've got this gift, this, they've got this gift of recovery, it's like they can speak into your heart directly, can't they? And I did, Lester, I got my bag, I got my coat, and I just got out of there. I literally got out of there. I, I, I left... And I never looked back. I went and stayed on a friend's sofa. My parents wouldn't put me up. Um, and I was involuntary homeless for two weeks. And then Granada rang me and said, we need your help. Kevin's not turned up for a... Um, a t it was a £2 million storyline um, that they'd, they'd planned for years, like for him and Raquel to do this two-hander, which is on, like the first time it had ever been done on Coronation Street. And I said, I can't help you. I don't live with him anymore. And that was that was when that was when the shit hit the fan, really. Because you because you had been cause probably an important part of the story there as well is is that 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 ultimately you were propping him up, you were enabling him as well. I was, I was. That his life was unmanageable, was really... but you were helping him to manage it. <sighs> I was like, I, I'll tell you what, I am. I could run a country. I, I'm so good at micromanagement. <laughs> I can run your life. I can yeah. run la my life. I can run his life. I can, I can make sure that all the booze <laughs> is in the fridge. I can make sure you've got food in the fridge. Do you know what I mean? I'm very good at spinning plates. And, and that's what is, yeah. it, exactly what had happened. Is it's, it was only in the leaving him. And I had to do... I still love this man. And, but I had to... Mm. I'd learned in Alan on that. I had to learn to love him with my arms wide open. And I knew I couldn't save him. And, you know, yeah. there comes a point so you where you do have two, to... Two addiction process there. You were 
dealing with your own uh, alcoholism, but also your own need to enable, like you're addicted to enabling yeah. him as well as, yeah. so you're dealing to leaving, you were actually breaking both of them cycles, yeah. which is a massive yeah. change, isn't it? It's, it's well worth highlighting That's... to people because again, it's, it's if that doesn't happen, nothing changes that. You know, it sounds ridiculous yeah. when people say, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Like, what are you on about? But but this is the moment that it's actually talking about, that you you made that change and broke the cycle. Yeah. And it had to be done. And, and unfortunately, it doesn't come easy, does it? You know what it's like. No. You know, we have to be broken. We have to be... I mean, me personally... It's it feels desperate. Know, it's the last thing you want to do, isn't it? It's yeah. a, it's like it's the last thing you want to do, uh, and what make and again, unfortunately, you have to get very desperate for people to to generally actually take that that action, yeah. and it's against everybody's nature. It feels up to that point, but it has a profound effect. Absolutely, it can lead to death, yeah. unfortunately, but it also it's not surprising to me that the amount of people that come into our rehab was when they're. It wasn't just them that had, had enough, it was their family that had, had enough. Everybody had just had enough. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, is if you don't learn as a family member how to <clears throat> how to let go with love, if you don't get that support, then what you at risk of doing, which is what I would do is um before I got support, was I would enable, 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 enable. I'd be the biggest enabler on God's earth. I'd lie, I'd, uh, you know, I'd, I'd control, I'd manipulate. I didn't know I was doing any of this. I thought I was helping, mm. you know. Um, mm. And then when I started to learn that actually my behaviour was insane, I was as crazy, if not more crazy, than Kevin because, you know, I'd go through his pockets like a military operation. I'd be checking bank statements. I'd be counting money out of his pockets. How much had he spent? You know, check it. I mean, in those days, we didn't have mobile phones. So I'd be, I'd be checking our telephone bill to see, you know, if he'd been ringing dealers. And I'd track down dealers. I'd go round to dealers and confront them. It's like absolutely batshit craziness. And it was a full-time job, honestly. Just one, one more thing that I think is so important about that moment, because, again, I think it's quite controversial what we're talking about now for lots of different levels, for lots of different people, but because it's it seems, and there's no... When you, when you talk to a lot of families and you say, well, why do you do it? And obviously they say, well, they're going to die if I don't do it. And... And there is a lot of truth to that. That on, and I think that's what creates this almost hostage situation. That on one hand, you actually are keeping them alive, but on the other hand, you're also aiding them to their death. And I think that becomes yeah. a dilemma that people that people get stuck in, and they don't have all of that other information that you gained. Go because again, you 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 have to reach a place where you have to believe that that this is the right thing, not the wrong thing that I'm doing. And I think yeah. that that, that, doesn't, that yeah. doesn't just come out of yourself. You, you have to learn that. You do, and you have to keep learning it. And that's why you have to keep going back to these meetings. <clears throat> like I say, going to, going to Al-Anon. And there are other fellowships available these days. There's, there's Al-Anon, there's mm. Naranon, there's Koanon. 
So narcotics, um, there's Narcotics Anonymous, which is for the addict, and Naranon um, is for family members who are affected by somebody else, family or friends that are affected by somebody else's drug taking. You know, you've got Coanon, which is almost like the sister fellowship for Cocaine Anonymous. Um, and one of the great things to come out of, if for anybody who's listening, armed, they've got great websites with lots of testimonies. They've got lots of like podcasts where people are talking about their own personal recovery as family members. And what I would say to people is, if you're not sure, just go on some of these websites and listen to some of their podcasts and listen for the similarities and not the differences. Because we as family members, we have to make a radical transformation ourselves and we have to keep going to those meetings. We have to keep getting educated because everything that I was doing was completely wrong. So going in and managing, micromanaging my husband and pouring away his alcohol, you know, threatening him. Um, I mean, yeah, they talk about life and death. Letting go is about life and death. But you know what? There was a risk that I could have actually killed him, you know, accidentally or purposefully because we used to get into so many fights when we were drinking. Um, he was drinking, I was drinking. I'd be shouting at him for drinking more than me and for taking drugs that I wasn't taking. And I'd end up fighting him, you know, so there's a chance I could have killed him in an accidental fight. Um, there's also a chance that I could have killed him by pouring away yeah well half of the domestic violence i think is you know i think um statistically that somebody usually a female dies every week um due to alcohol but i often think when you get two alcoholics drinking together that can often result in death at the end yeah and what i would say is it doesn't get talked about a lot about female violence no. towards men. Kevin was not a physical mm. violent man. He was a verbally violent man in the sense that he was very intelligent. He could use words to to baffle me and that really annoyed me. So when I was drunk, I would be the one that would get violent. And obviously doing a lot of drinking, I would do a lot of violent acts in blackout, you know, and wake up the next day full of remorse, not knowing what really I'd done or what I hadn't done. And obviously there's a lot of shame and guilt around that too. But there is a lot of that goes on. There is a lot of that goes on. And I speak to women often daily who are the perpetrator of the violent act towards their alcoholic husband or or their addicted husband. And it's like, it's almost like they have, it's like they use it as an excuse. Oh, well, he was drunk, you know, or he was drugged. And it's like, it's never good. It's never, it's never right. It's never good to to be violent towards anybody. So obviously there was a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, amends that I had to make. Then police programs, because as a, a professional that worked in addiction, when the police turn up, uh, to somebody that's been drinking or on drugs, the way the police treat them often ends up in the police kneeling on their neck. And I think the police don't treat them like drunk people and they just provoke them. And, yeah. and I think even watching them police programmes, it's the way they handle drunk people is just so bad. It it's causes really bad. so much really... unnecessarily um, violence, violence and harm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, there's a better way a to handle drunk people. 
Yeah. yeah. I was a psychopath when I was drunk. I was unhinged. It, it, it triggered in me a side that people that know and love me now look at me and can't actually quite believe that I could be like that. I'm, I'm never like that normally. I've been sober 25 <laughs> years. I've never acted out psychopathically in those sobriety years. Yeah, I get angry and annoyed, but I don't turn into some sort of like psychopathic Rambo character that I really, you know, it was, yeah. it was just drug-affected anger. It's not a good thing. So I totally agree. I think the police really could do with learning a little bit more about recovery, to be honest, and how to deal with affected people because it's like poking an angry hornet's nest, isn't it? You're going to get an angry hornet that's going to be even angrier because you poked it. Yeah, well, they don't, they don't, they don't, and they don't like... You know, they don't. People don't like that other side of the story, especially with men, because uh, again, my first sponsor, his wife um, went to Al-Anon, and 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 again, she would say that that he was um, used to be quite aggressive towards her. But when she went to Al-Anon, they sort of said to her, "Look, it's not right that he's coming home drunk. It's not right that he's um, behaving that way. But you shouting and screaming at him when he's drunk, uh, he would hit her." Now, again, I'm not saying that's right. It's absolutely 100% not. But what she said, this is her words, she said, you know, she was in um, Al-Anon two years before he gave up drinking. And when they told her to, look, just don't try and deal with him when he's drunk, yeah. she said, he never hit me again. And and again, yeah, it's like surprise. I've been to quite a lot of domestic violence groups and they really loathe... To, to say that, because again, it seems like, well, yeah, but they shouldn't treat It's like, no, we know that, but he's drunk. You've got to understand. Look, drunk people wouldn't drive like that if they were sober. No one in their right mind would drive a car in that condition if they were sober. They're, they're driving like that because they're drunk. It's not an excuse. It's a fact. It's and they a deserve fact. punishment yeah. and they deserve all of that. But unless you start treating people like drunk people, it's, it's even like the drug agencies always made me laugh. They're like, well, they don't turn up to their appointments. I'm like, you do understand what being on drugs means, don't you? You know, <laughs> how about I give you job. 90 mil of meth? If I give you 90 mil of meth, a handful of Valium and half a bottle of white lightning, let's see if you turn up for your next appointment on time. It's like you don't yeah. understand what's going on in their heads and their lives. It's like it seems that you're trying to treat these people like normal people, and, and they're not. They're not they're normal not. in that state. You, you, and if you adjust yeah. to that, you can manage them a lot better. I don't believe in removing all the consequences because I think the consequences should be actually kept at the forefront because that's good intervention, yeah. and I think... Most people, you could probably knock 10, 20 years off of their trip if society yeah. understood meaningful um, um, intervention by bringing the consequences that are usually many, uh, instead of everybody enabling them and, and laying them off, to bring the consequences yeah. to the person and say, look, these yeah. are the, the consequences of your actions and this is our response to it. But but again, it's sort of shocking now. I totally still agree. Understand that? Yeah, I totally agree. And and honestly, I'm I'm not taking any of the glory for Kevin's getting into recovery. But had I not left him, had he not plummeted 
I mean, I chose on that day to go and immerse myself in, in meetings. I knew that if I stayed, I was going to die or kill him. Uh, it was that, it was that, that was the choice. If I stay, I'm going to end up either killing myself, killing him, or both of us are going to end up dying or drinking ourselves to death. And I knew that that was the clarity of the situation. So I had to walk away. But I also knew that there was a chance that he could die. And I had to trust. I had to, that blind faith that I was practising in Al-Anon around my higher power. You know, they talk about having getting a higher power in your life and surrendering your will in your life over to a higher power on a daily basis. You, you're encouraged to do that in Al-Anon. And I had to, I had to my Al-Anon sponsor said to me, who are you to believe that your higher power is going to, going to do for you what you can't do for yourself but your your arrogance tells you that you can't hand over your husband and I was like she's got a really good point you know what I mean so I had to practice what I preached I had to have blind faith around right I've got to trust that this high power whatever the consequences may be will do for Kevin what 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 needs to be done so I had to walk away and in that two weeks that he was in his what I call hurtling towards his rock bottom. He lost his wife. He lost. He nearly lost his job. You know, he lost. God, he probably lost his wallet. Probably lost loads of money. Um, definitely dignity and respect, and all of the things of his friends that he was hanging on to that I was like helping him disguise, all went out the window. So you know, in that two weeks of him hurtling. But you know what? If ever you get the chance to read Kev's book. Even when he was at his rock bottom, he's still... What's his book called? In his head. This is the insane... It's called The Street to Recovery. Because um, he was in Coronation Street when he when he got on his journey to recovery. So it, it's almost like yeah. it's, um, it's a book about his journey in, as an actor and um, on Coronation Street and how, thanks to Granada and thanks to being, you know... Um, gifted the opportunity to to get his life together um that led to his recovery it's, granada saved his life so that intervention that we implemented um when he when when his two weeks of rock bottom hit um they rang me and they said you know can you help we won't ask you to do another thing but can you help and that honest to god i didn't know what i was doing but i got somebody from aa to go around and i couldn't be the person um, this woman sat her in the flat where we lived. I let, let her in and disappeared. And Kevin got up and went into the lounge and was like, who are you? And she was like, oh, my name's Heather. Claire's dropped me off. I'm here to help. So he said, oh, I've got to get ready for work. And in his book, he says, I could feel myself starting to sweat. You know, those morning sweats when you feel the... You, you feel like you've been shot out of a frog because you've not had in, anything to drink whilst you've been asleep. Um, and he said, oh, I'm going to have to sh have a shower. And he, he said, I, I could feel myself sweating in the shower, you know, like when you're starting to shake. And and he thought, and this woman had said to him, Granada have been on and they've said, if you we, they want to help you, but if, if you don't take this opportunity, that you're going to have to come in and talk about, the, um, about being sacked, about they're going to sack you. So it's either you choose the recovery, this offer of help, or you go in to talk. Either way, you've got to go in and I'm going to drive you in. And he, in his book, he says, I'm thinking to myself, I need a drink that bad that if this woman 
doesn't stop the car, I'm quite prepared to throw myself out of the car. So that's 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 the length it got to. He was quite prepared to throw himself out of the car so he could get a drink. Um, luckily, she was a recovering alcoholic, so she got it. And she said to it, she was, she said, he, he said, I need to stop on the way. And she said, don't worry, Kevin, I understand. And he said, you know, I'm stopping for vodka, don't you? So she said, of course I do. She said, I'm a recovering alcoholic. So she said, you do whatever it is you need to do so you, 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 you're stable. Um, but you do need to have a conversation when you get to Granada. And Granada then said to him, look, you either go into the Priory or you, you're going to have to resign. But I'd worded them up. They'd changed their whole philosophy. They'd implemented a new policy at Granada because of this situation where rather than it be a sackable offence, it was a case of, right, we know what's going on. We're really sorry that you're not well. Um, we want to help you. But if you don't want to take this offer of help, then there's nothing else we can do. But you'll have to leave. Simple. It's really forward thinking, isn't it? I think oh, even in the so AA book thinking. about the um, to the employees, even in 1937, I think they made the argument that, look, if you've got a guy that you've spent hundreds of thousands training over sort of two decades, um, it's much ben more beneficial and probably more cost-effective to support him into treatment than when he comes back, you've got a, um, a loyal employee and you've maintained all of that skills that have been built up over over 20 years. So you know, that was in 1937. But again, I don't think the country always... I think um, Virgin Atlantic and certain companies uh, are forward-thinking in that way that it's better to help people than, if they want it <laughs> than just to yeah. uh, get rid of them. There's a lot more. There's a lot more. There's still a lot of work to do, though, Lester. There's a lot of companies yeah, out there that aren't forward thinking. And and the fact that that, that yeah. was my argument that I said to them, I said, if you give him this opportunity to get to get well, um, if you lend us the money, so they lent us the money. They, at the time, it, I think it was 18 grand to the go priori. in for a month. We didn't have, yeah. yeah. At the time, we didn't have 18 grand. And I said, if you lend us the money, I promise you, whatever happens, now don't forget I'm in recovery now. I'm reading the book. I've read that chapter to the to the employers. I'm I'm spouting that off to Granada, saying, "I can promise you, I'll yeah. pay you back. Right, whatever happens, I'll pay you back. If Kevin gets into recovery or doesn't, I will take responsibility to pay you back. And what I promise you, right, is if you do help him, and he does get well, I promise you, he will become one of the greatest assets that this company's ever had." And I, I'm not talking as an actor. I'm talking as a go-to person for other people that may come come forward. And you know what? Still to this day, he is one of those people that when there is a high-profile actor or an actor or, or a cameraman or a CEO or somebody that needs help, uh, that, that people will reach out to him and say, you know, is there any chance you can have a, a chat with him? Because... Yeah. That's what we do in it. Mm. It becomes our greatest gift. Yeah, highlight so, of yeah, life so, really is when you carry the message. Yeah. And so that they they really they that for them it was blind faith. They didn't have a they didn't have a clue really who I was. They didn't really have a clue what I was saying was right. But I I must have said it with such conviction that they thought right. Well, let's give it a go. So that, that they so he ended up in the priory. 
Yeah, so I was at Granada uh, waiting for Heather to bring him in, in my car. He turned up, um, Granada presented this, this opportunity to him and said, look, we really appreciate you're not well, Kevin. You can't do this on your own. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, Claire's told us enough to know that <clears throat> we can't help you. She can't help you. <clears throat> you need you need medical, you need a medical intervention. So at this point now, if Kevin didn't drink, he was having seizures all over the shop. So, um, and they said, we're, we're willing to lend you the money to go into the Priory. Um, and then when you come out, so meanwhile, whilst he's in the Priory, I'm also talking to them saying, okay, but that's, when that's he comes a really out, good intervention, isn't it? That, that, that whole process, yeah. just for people that might be listening, it was a, it was a good intervention because it's like, again, all the consequences were presented to him. Look, this isn't going to carry on yeah. like this. That's not an option. Um, yeah. We want to help you. And, I mean, we always used to call it, you paint the rat into the corner and only give it one way out. But being a lot being a lot nicer is that, <laughs> that you know, <laughs> people see a lot of the interventions on the American where they're sort of old families there and it's a bit of a joke almost now. But, again, that is a very profound yeah moment in somebody's life to say look we all really care about you but we're not going to keep supporting you in this journey anymore unless you go into to treatment and again a lot of people find yeah. that really offensive it's almost like it's against their human rights like you're taking away their freedom it's like well if you actually think they have any freedom at this point then you're probably more insane than they are yeah but it's, uh, and, and, it and works do you know so what well honestly often. it does it really, really does work. Often it works. I'd say in my experience, so, so prof I mean, I ended up going into this field like later on in my life um, after doing the training and, you know, all of the right work at the Priory for five years as a, as a trainee family therapist and um, ended up working for private healthcare companies, working with families and just helping them understand the part that they play in, in first of all, in their own life. And second of all, and I've also worked a lot with businesses, worked with high functioning, when I say high functioning addicts, addicts that have still got jobs that, that really would be difficult to lose, but like a CEO of a business. And I've been brought in. I don't do this now. This is what I used to do prior to running the charity. And I would go in and I would work with I would work with them as a company and say, right, well, look, you have got this opportunity to make a massive difference and potentially save his life or that her life or, you know. Um, and then what, what I, a big piece of the work that I do is then prep the, the other staff members or family members in the part that they play. So it's not about him coming back or her coming back and then you enabling them, treading on eggshells, you know, like, you know, talking to them as if, like, they're, they're going to break. It's about you just learning to let go of love, be respectful, be mindful, you know, learn to deal with this situation differently. It, you know, if you are thinking that they've had a drink or a drug, ask them. You know, have a protocol in place where you can, you know, they agree to being drug tested, they agree to being breathalysed uh, randomly, you know, at any given opportunity, you know, agree that they, they must go to meetings, you know, have an agreement with them. that So like businesses, you know, 
talk to talk to the the person coming back about how many meetings are you going to go to a week so it's about upskilling the staff members around people you know mm -hmm. so they know what you know a lot of people think going into rehab is what st what gets people well it's that's where you discover what you suffer with you don't recover in 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 rehab you go to rehab to discover what you suffer with you you actually recover in the community by going to meetings it all starts in meetings recovery it doesn't i mean like I say, it's you discover what you suffer with in rehab. And if you're lucky, you might start to look at the 12 steps and start to go through a process with them. But your actual real life recovery starts in the community, in your family, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I often think that because, again, I'm, I mean, I took to um, 12 step like duck to water, which isn't, you know, it's probably more the exception than the rule. And I never drunk again from my first meeting at the age of 25. I just really loved the God part of it, the steps part of it, the service part of it. But 33 years later, I realised, you know, it really was the people that were on the other end of that phone at three in the morning. It really was the people yeah. that I could phone up, like, like you said yourself, you know, that, that there was some that I had that somewhere else to go and someone else to talk to, but that fellowship was so indispensable to me. Not all of it, because again, I don't get on with everybody, but I learned that I need at least one or two of you to speak to me. Yeah. Because they're the ones that at the end of the day um, help me to change my mind when I'm when I'm heading in the wrong direction. Mm. So, you know, I do like all the programme and the fellowship, um, the, the meetings and the the service, but I think that bit of it is so, so important because, again, even in our culture where they say, oh, if you've got a mental health problem, talk to someone. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that because, again, I think talking to the wrong person can definitely make things a lot worse um, because, again, I found that myself. I've had a lot of problems and a lot of people I talk to I just make them incredibly uncomfortable. And, you know, yeah. so it, then it can cause an opposite effect to you where you don't want to talk to anybody. So I think having the right people to talk to is the key, but it is the right, having the right people to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's finding, it's community, isn't it? It's fine. I think what I've mm. discovered in recovery, it's like you say, you're not you're not going to like everybody you meet. There are some nutters out there that you don't want to be near, you know. I mean, but you would find them. Yeah, in the I, pub, I was one you? of them. I was one of them for I was <laughs> one of them for a long time. That was the trouble. <laughs> so you went through your nutty period. Well, I just if people find me hard work. I find me hard work. It's like I just it's that's the condition that I was in. It was like. And so, yeah. really, um, it was only a small amount of guys that were kind of, I guess, as difficult as me that had kind of made it good. Then again, I, I, I found out if I if I think I'm bothering you, then that was so uncomfortable for me as well. And so, but in AA, that I found people that that I didn't really bother, and and that's important because if you show any sign, because again, in my dysfunctional background, if you show any sign of I'm bothering you. The rejection that I feel is like unbearable, and, and so actually, yeah. even taking the risk of 
asking for help to seem to be a Mount Everest to actually climb. But, but I've also learned that's given me the biggest release and still does. You know, I really do my spiritual stuff. I work my program. I do all that other stuff. But I know at the end of the day, when I'm in my worst, when I'm in my worst, darkest place, um, it's usually somebody else that I know loves me, that understands me, that, that helps me. When I put my hand out, they, they're able to take my hand and just guide me out. And, and I think that's kind of what I found for myself. I don't know how I would survive without that, even now. You know, which I say even now, because yeah. I learned a lot in the last 33 years. And I'm pretty knowledgeable about all this stuff, but but I still need that that other person. It doesn't necessarily have to be anyone in recovery anymore. It could be my wife, but, you know, mm. I know when I'm in that place... I make other people really uncomfortable and they don't yes. want to be around me. Yeah. I don't want to be around me. And I, I don't I don't have the yeah. benefit of drugs and alcohol to get away from myself anymore. Absolutely. And I think I, we so you know, one of the programs that we run at our recovery hub, our charity, we're really passionate about our volunteers. So our volunteers are people who are new to recovery, basically. So they come to our recovery hub. It's almost like a community offering. Um, so pe people come to me, they say, Claire, will you help me? And I say, well, I can I can be part of the plan. I can be part of your toolkit. But what we're going to do is we're going to connect you to people that can really help you. Because I don't know about you, Lester, but at the beginning of my journey, I needed an army. And I needed to find the, mm. the people within the army, that that those, those officers, those people that were really going to play a big part in my life. But initially, because I was very unwell, I needed a lot of people to be able to speak to because, <clears throat> oh, I was in, I was proper, like, I was very unwell. You know what I mean? I, I, I needed, I needed a lot of support. One person, it would have killed them, you know. So I did need, that's why I think the, the fellowships are really good because you do, you get an yeah. army, don't you? You get an army of people that, yeah. that love you, that care for you, their unconditional love. So what we do here at this hub, people come to me, they say, Claire, will you help me? And I say, do you know what? I'll do everything I can to connect you to the resources that you need to be connected to. And we offer Claire, just a just to get a picture space. of your hub, is a picture of yeah. your hub. So you're in, you're in Brighton. What does that look like in, in, in physical terms? Is it like a building, a shop? Uh, what, what does it look it's, like? It's a, so it basically what it is it's it's an old like um lodge on on the entrance to a park so it's a long thin building we've converted it or we're converting it into like a cafe because a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of the work that we do is done over a cup of tea um and we get end of day fresh produce so we get uh, we collect end-of-day fresh produce from Marks and Spencers and from a local baker's called Gales. In fact, I think it's a national baker's now. And they give us their yeah. end-of-day fresh produce. They give us all of their end-of-day fresh cakes and bread. And we use the food as a tool to connect people. So people come here, all sorts of walks of life. Every single person that you can possibly imagine who's seeking a solution to their problem. Um, and what we do is we all we sit down, we have a cup of tea 
And that's where it starts, really. And we have a conversation. We do. I do an assessment with them if they're looking for help. Some people aren't even actually looking for help. They come in to tell us that they're alcoholic or that they've got an addiction, but they don't want help. So I'm like, okay, well, you can still have a cup of tea. Well, a sandwich or something. Do you want a cake? (laughs) Because do you know what? Sometimes it's that simple act of kindness that helps people to come back when they are ready. So... We use that as a tool. I don't, I never, I, ne- I have no expectations of anybody that comes through the door. And then what we do is we offer as little or as much support as they want. And it's not just me. I've got an army of volunteers who are all in recovery. So I've got about 20 recovering volunteers who are actively going to their own meetings. They've all got sponsors. They're all going through the 12-step process themselves. Um <clears throat> And they act as peer supporters. So basically, they're like they're like me out there making cups of tea, sitting down, having a chat. You know, what's going on? What is it you need some help with? Are you looking for support? Are you not looking for support? Some people are looking for treatment. Okay, well, we'll connect you to treatment. This is what's available. Um, whilst you're waiting for those treatment providers to get back to you, because you're looking at two weeks in Brighton before our local drug and alcohol, the commission service um, is CGL. They're great, but they're very oversubscribed. And you're looking between five and 14 days before you get a an initial phone call um, just to find out what's wrong with you. So what we say is, right, whilst you're waiting for that phone call, why don't you come to some of these meetings? Because this is what's going to... We can introduce you to amazing people and you've met most of a lot of amazing people here over a cup of tea. So um, and we get people from the fellowship coming in. And so like if we've got a fella and he's like, oh, actually, we've just referred him to CGL, but he really wants to go to a meeting tonight. Can you, Alan, can you take him to the meeting tonight? So we connect him straight away. And then off they go to say, come back and let us know how you got on tomorrow and we care we really do care you know we don't judge we don't ever we've we've got a lot of kindness here you know we don't shout at people we we, we don't go oh can't believe you've relapsed we don't do any of that we go you know what relapse can be part of your journey but the most important thing is you keep going to those meetings keep just so we help them build like a commitment plan where they go okay so if I go to two meetings a day and then can I come here in the day to keep myself safe? I'm like, yes, of course you can. So what we do is we offer like a safe space in the day where people can come, they connect again, they help me. say, listen, if you're going to come and connect and help here, we're going to help you. Why don't you volunteer for us? Because you, you're now drug-free, you're now alcohol-free, you go to meetings, okay, you're in the early stages, you're using this space as a safe space. We're a tiny charity. We ain't got loads of funding to pay staff. Why don't you help me brew up? And they go, what, me help you brew up? And I'm like, yeah, you. We need, we need you. And often they're quite gobsmacked that actually I'm offering them that opportunity right from the get-go. And so they, they come and they come and they, every day. We've, we've, all of our volunteers have helped us decorate this place. All of them have helped us do the garden. We've got a little garden outside. All of them have helped us create the artwork for the walls that we're going to be auctioning off in, at the end of um, 
November for our big give campaign. All of the volunteers help brew up. They help me collect the end of day fresh produce. So do you see what I mean? It's about they get alongside yeah, me. Keeping everyone involved. This isn't about me. Yeah. Abs. This is not about me doing for them. This is about us mm. getting together because do you know what? Mm. There's going to be a man or a woman that's going to walk through that door that's whose knees are knocking who won't know what to do or where to start and they're going to be terrified. That's what I was saying in myself, realising realising the importance, again, of just having somewhere else to go, um, just somewhere else to be. And I realised that was so important to me to prov- and also to provide that space that, 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 that they've got somewhere else to go. And I, I think that's... It's, it's, I've even got a story in Brighton, I'd like to tell you quick, because... I've just come back from Canada when I was 20, I would have been 28 years old. And I was struggling so much. I'd done three years in recovery and I was doing okay, still struggling um, a lot with myself. And I was having so many problems in Watford where I was living. I felt so uncomfortable that I knew this guy in Brighton and uh, he was pretty much living in a derelict, derelict house. It was his house, but it was still quite derelict. And so he's the only person that that I felt comfortable with. So I went to stay with him and I felt so depressed and I felt that way for probably a couple of years. And um, so I turned up at his house and he was eating, he was going down to Chinatown and getting sort of all the out-of-date food and throwing it in this pot. And he said, I've not changed that pot in, he couldn't even remember, I couldn't eat out of this pot. I don't know how he wasn't dying, but... I didn't have any money. I couldn't sign on because of all these issues that I had and I just couldn't cope. And I'd never really been to um, a soup kitchen or a homeless uh, day centre before, but I needed something to eat and I felt so deflated. And I was a very capable person, um, but but because of the depression, I just felt to just like switched off. It was like somebody had switched all my abilities off and that I'd sunk through this net into um, pretty much homelessness and um, and despair in recovery. And I found myself like thinking, I don't know what's happening to me and I can't seem to help myself like these chains had been put on me. And I remember going to say, look, I've got to get something to eat. And he said, look, there's this place like your project. He said, go there. This was would have been like sort of 25, 30 years ago almost. He said, go to this place. And I felt so ashamed that I'd have to go and ask for food. And it was like I walked to this place like this with this terrible feeling of shame. And he's like, I don't even know if I can do this. And I got to this... Um, door of this place like like your center and i opened this door and as soon as i opened this door i see all these people in there they were all getting fed and the noise and laughing and i just burst into tears and i'm not i'm not now but then i certainly wasn't a crier i just burst into tears because i couldn't believe that i'd come to this and this guy that looked like what i'd call a tramp he come up to me and he went 50p cigarette just like that in front of my face it went 50p <laughs> cigarette 
And honestly, I swear to God, that act of kindness, it's like he just, something switched back on in me. It was just that Aww. act of kindness that he did to me. It's almost like all of my, it's like the chains broke off, the depression broke off, and I knew what to do then. And uh, I ended up going back to Watford and, and getting involved in, a, there's a Christian group that had these two old buses where they would um, give out soup and sandwiches. And I went in there and again, as soon as I walked in, I just burst into tears again. I, I went there because oh. I wanted to help them because I realised I got her help. And they said, oh, around the corner, we're rebuilding our um, day centre. It's a timber frame building. I said, I'm, I'm good at timber frame. I, I'm, that's my thing. So I went round there and volunteered helping them build this soup kitchen and it kind of, my life kind of developed them. So again, it's like them little moments of uh, yeah, having so somewhere important. to go and that little act of kindness, it's just, it's mind-blowing. It's just so mind-blowing. And again, I'm very grateful to all of them angels that have been there at the bottom of my barrels to uh, yeah. either just offer me a 50p and a cigarette. <laughs> that's so sweet don't even know who they are and it's so you important you don't even know who they are do you? and do you know what you don't know who they are and do you know what it can be that a simple act of kindness that just breaks through someone's heart mm. it just touches them in a mm. place that they might not have been touched for a long time just a simple act of kindness you know a cup of tea cake you know do you want to, i'm always doing toasties as well so it's like we get loads of bread so i provide the ham i mean this is what we have to fundraise for i provide the ham and the cheese and the butter you know um and i'll say do you want a toasty people come to the door and people say to me um i mean a lot of people they, they have they have got money you know they they have they but they might just not be at that place or they might have drank it all or the partner's taken it all off them or they've drugged it all, you know. And the, I say it's not it's not relevant at the moment. Don't worry about it. When you've got some money and you want to come back, then you can buy a cheese toasty from us because it's like a pay-it-forward type cafe what we're developing. You know, when people can afford to buy... I mean, when people do want to buy a cup of tea, coffee, it's a, a quid. You know, it's not expensive. Some people that we've helped, they'll come in and they'll go, oh, I'll put two quid in the pot today, buy some, get, you know, pass, pay it forward. So it, this place is emerging as to what God wants it to be. I'm a big believer in God now. I didn't believe in God in the early days. It was blind faith and it was the group of the group, the group that was the, my higher power. Today, I've been sober 25 years. I've seen miracles happen on a daily basis. I've seen my husband's life be transformed. I've seen my life be transformed. I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of people's lives be transformed in the work that I do in the community. Who am I to say that there's no God? I didn't do it. You know what I mean? I've just been one of them people, kindred spirit. With a, I'm like a good lamp. Basically, God's given me a torch and gone, crack on, lady. Um... And I use cheese toasties to help shine a torch, you know. Um, and it is a privilege. Not what a privilege we have. And what a beautiful privilege <laughs> life we leave, lead, eh, Lester? You know. Yes. Right, I don't drive a Ferrari well, these days. I think days, it's that care. I think, I think that, no, I think for all of my time, because it is difficult, recovery is difficult, it can be brutal. It's not easy life, um, especially when you're, your body's not fully equipped to deal with it and your nervous system's not 
as uh, tough as you'd want it to be. But I do find that what what I realise is that, you know, even like, because again, I think human beings have got a superpower that everything, and again, this is the God bit. See, I think God is forgiving and God is love and love is forgiving. And most of us are trying to get and that's not how it works. You've got to learn to give because, again, I realised that that whatever we love as human beings, whether it's our hair, our shoes, our car, our garden, our children, whatever we love, we bring the best out in. And whatever we don't love, we bring the worst out in. So children that aren't loved or maybe just feel they're not loved, if you don't feel cared for, which, again, I think has been my major problem, is that I don't, when I think somebody doesn't care, it causes a real um, darkness in me. Now, again, I've learned to self-care, so I don't get caught up in that so much. But I do realise is that when you feel like somebody doesn't care, even in a restaurant, when you feel they don't care about your food or care about your service, you know, and the people that do care, it, it, it just makes you feel so much better. And so I've I've learned that being in the care business, that is that I I might not have had the best rehab, I might not have had the best project, I might not have had the best anything, but everyone knew we cared. And I think that's really what they come there for. And so you know, as my staff, we all agree that look, we've got to really show that we care, even if we can't help you. It's not that we don't care. It's yeah. that maybe that we can't, like you're saying. It's like, look, I can't carry on with you like you behaving like that. It's not that I don't care. It's the fact I actually do care that doesn't allow me to do that. So I realised that, and again, being in a 12-step programme, is that ultralistic, is that that has taught me to to try and show care to other people. And, and I think that's... Yeah kind of my whole life sort of built around that now again <laughs> and 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 some people are thinking well you don't seem like you care and it's like well I do but you know you got I care in this way I can't do everything you want me to do because I don't think everything is 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 kind of caring and I think that's such a massive problem in our country because if someone and I've traveled quite a bit of the world but if someone said to me could you explain England I'd say it's like having a rich dad that don't care. It's like I just feel this. And when I went to Canada when I was young, I think the difference is I felt like people in Canada cared about me more. When I come back to England, I just didn't feel like people cared. And even just that that tramp with his 50p in cigarette, that just seemed like that was the first person that just didn't even know me, but just cared. Mm. He just see exactly what yeah. was wrong with me and offered support uh, in, in that simple way that, that literally, like I said, it was like he turned a switch back on in me. And then it's like all my energy come back and, and that's sort of the, the, the foundation of that part of my life was based on that, that small, small act. And um, so, yeah, so... You're, uh, how, how would someone get in touch with you or to get to your project? So, um, the best way to contact us is you can ring us or you can email us. Best email us, to be honest. 
We've got um, a helpline number. I'll give you that in a minute. <coughs> Excuse me, Catherine. Yeah, we'll put all that in the links. Um, we'll put all that in the links at the end anyway. Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. Excuse me, I'm coughing a bit. Hang on. Yeah, so best way to contact us is um, via email or we've got a helpline number um, which is open every day. Um, it's always manned by one of our volunteers or myself. And basically what we do is we, we, we offer support and connection to people who are looking for recovery. Some people come in here, like I said earlier, some people come in here. We had a lady come in the other day. She was very drunk. Um, and I said to her, I said, unfortunately, we're not what we call like a safe place, as in like a, a using room. And she said, I'm just really lonely. So I said, well, I just want some company. So I said, well, are you looking to get into recovery? Are you looking to address your drinking um, problem? She said, I've not got a drinking problem. So I said, oh, sorry. I said, I thought that's why you'd come here. So she said, no, I come here because somebody told me to come here. So she said, I'm just very lonely. She was very drunk. So I said, well, I don't know if we're the place for you to be honest i said because we're, we're a drug and alcohol free safe space you know we ask people that do come here to be drug and alcohol free you know if they do have to have a drink to get them into treatment then that's a different thing but we look at that for assessment point but we're not just a place where people just come and hang out and sit gouging out or sit crying because they're drunk because that can be a big trigger for us um, volunteers so you know and she didn't like the fact that, you know, we weren't the place for her. But I said, look, you know, there's loads of places out there that will welcome you. If you're looking for company and you're still looking to drink. I said, but the title is on the sign outside. There's the suggestions on the sign outside. We're an addiction recovery hub. Um, You know, and some people aren't looking for that. So we can't help everybody. But again, we give her a cup of tea and a cake. And off she went. Um, I think she went to the pub down the road. Um, but, <clears throat> yeah, we can't help everybody. But for those that are interested in recovery, that are serious about getting, you know, sorting themselves out, um, then we can we can help. And we've got we've got meetings running out of here, that different fellowships run. We let the room be rented at very low cost. So we've got um, Sex Addicts Anonymous at the weekend. We've got Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. We've got... Um, adult children of alcoholics hire the place. We've got cocaine anonymous, no, not cocaine anonymous. We've got narcotics anonymous meetings. So the idea is, is we can connect people in the day to to provision it in close proximity to what you know where they live. Um, but yeah, get in contact. Come and have a cup of tea. It all starts with a cup of tea, and it's Yorkshire tea. Claire, uh, one of the things that you talked about that's kind of really become more and more of an interest to me over the years is about about families. Again, I'd probably use the word dysfunctional, but I know that's not a can't think of a better word uh, at this point. But and 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 again, working in the addiction treatment field over the years, we used to do a lot of family talks because I realised that that Alanon. Um, is a fantastic support group and the people that went the families that actually went and engaged you could see a massive 
difference in them that actually supported the people with addiction problems recovery and but i also thought that you know there's there's, there's not a lot of help for families and it is again it's a very complex um problem and and so talking to the families over the years i'd always leave them feeling i wish i could have done more for them because again it's it's like i guess another word that's probably not the greatest of words for me is codependency but i think if we started to discuss it now for maybe an hour and a half two hours a week it may still take a couple of years like it did for you for someone to actually understand what it actually means because it's very difficult you realize with families that it's like i'd say to them how much money have you spent on your child your loved one your husband your wife and they would often say you know it could be hundreds of thousands of pounds people had remortgaged their houses they cashed in their pensions and then you say how many hours have you spent running them around paying off dealers you know going through all of the terrible suffering that families have to go through which there is no statistic for which i wish there was i yeah. wish there was a statistic for suffering because we'd all be shocked about how much suffering goes on in the families but but then you'd say to them look why are you actually doing that they'd say we're exhausted they, they've literally exhausted their families their parents their finances they're like we just can't help anymore we can't pay for rehab one more time we can't pay another dealer off they've literally exhausted all of our resources and it's like well why do you do it and they're like because i don't want them to die and it's like and, or I'm helping them. And it's like, well, have you helped them? They're like, yeah, I've helped them get worse. <laughs> and, and, and and there's no, they, they, they don't know that way out. And again, and, and, and what I realise is unless you can convince somebody that there's a better way, which, see, what they're all doing is natural. They're all naturally responding because all of the families that you meet they all respond in the same way. Now, once they've done 10, 15, 20 years of it, a couple hundred grand, thousands of hours of pacing around police cells, hospital beds, they generally start figuring out, I'm not helping here. I'm helping to make this worse. Um, but they, nat they, they people naturally respond in, in, in certain ways. So... Going to Al-Anon and learning, and again, people go, oh, well, it's tough love that that's got a bad rap. Like, oh, what, you want me to kick him out and all the rest of it? It's like, well, it's not saying that. It's just saying that there possibly is a better way, but it's not a way that you would naturally develop. You may have to go, and again, it can be just as difficult getting a family member to go and get some treatment for themselves as it yeah. is because they're the same like you're saying well i haven't got a problem if they stop i'll be all right and especially like mothers with children that, that obviously have issues of their own it's very hard especially if they've got guilt or shame to stop them completely enabling their their children so again it is very complex and like most things very controversial opposite views of each other um but I know professionally you've done a lot of work around that. So I'd really love to um, to get your experience of what you've kind of learned about 
you know, the family afterwards, kind of. Yeah. Or during, it, actually, the family during and afterwards. It is, it is so complex, Lester, as you know. You know, there isn't, <clears throat> there isn't a mm. one-size-fits-all, but there isn't enough talked about family recovery. So I think, you know, obviously doing podcasts like this are really helpful because what it does is it, it just changes the narrative, um, you know. And people say to me, you know, oh, I've not got it in me for this tough love. It isn't tough love. It's called self-care. If you, you can't pour from an empty cup, if, if you're operating in fear and chaos and dysfunction, what are you going to get? You're going to get fear, dysfunction and chaos in return, aren't you? So it's like, unfortunately, I had to learn the hard way. And my experience of working with other family members is they have to learn the hard way too. It's like the addict. You know, it isn't a case of just being told, stop drinking and stop drug taking. And then go, oh, thank you for that information. I'll go now and just stop drinking and drug taking. It isn't, it's, it isn't as simple as that for the family either. It takes a long time to get into dysfunction. I know we call it dysfunction. It's got such negative connotations. But basically, it, they're all learned behaviours, you know, as family members. <clears throat> And you can't, you can't practice a new way unless you learn a new way. You don't know what you don't know, do you? It's like recovery from anything. No. I look at the family recovery as prolifically as <clears throat> the recovery for the addict. It's as important. Um, and, and I say to family members, this isn't a choice. If you want your addict to, your affected other, I call them, if you want your affected other to initiate change, you have to show them how you're going to initiate change in your life. It's a power of example, you know, and whatever it takes for you to do that, you have to be willing to go to any lengths. You have to be willing to, 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 to go to retreats. I don't think there's enough retreat type places. There aren't, I, I, there definitely aren't any rehabs I know of that help family mm. members. Um, but I do think that there's definitely scope for more work to be done around family recovery. And I know for sure I get people on a daily basis ringing me from all over the country asking me to help their loved one. <clears throat> um, and what I do say, it's standard really, is there isn't much I can do to help your loved one at this point, but I know I can help you if you if you're looking to change. And that's the magic. That's the magic yeah. word, isn't I think, it? I think because it's that into because even when they're supporting them, like giving them money, dealing with the dealers, you know, all of that stuff. That again, they say, you know, again, um, people when you're talking like this from the point of view that I come from would probably want to shout at me, but. You can't help a dead addict. You can't help a dead addict. What your way's killing them is like. Well, actually, so's your way. Yeah. You're trying to do these interventions, but people do get trapped when you actually help boil it down for people. It's to say, look. So what you're saying is the reason that you're helping them and you're willing to literally let them dismantle your life. Remember, and I'm probably the same for you. I've had parents say, "I effing hate them." I hope they die, and I'm so ashamed of myself. 
but the torment they've caused and the destruction they've caused our family, that takes a lot for a parent to get to that place. And they've been through a lot. But then it's like you say to them, it's like, because again, I believe they're in a hostage situation that it's like, if you don't help me, I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to die. And so you say, why are you actually doing it? And they're like, I couldn't live with myself if they die. Yeah. And so it's they're like, operating in fear, but you know they're they? dying anyway. Yeah. They're operating in fear. Well, yes, because again, it's it's preferable it's preferable for them to die with them helping them, even though that's not what they would want, than it is for them to die without them not helping them. Yeah. And and so the alternative, which I think is offered in Al-Anon, when you understand it, is saying, look, we're not saying don't help them, because again, I think we've kind of realised that, you know, you may be keeping them alive, but at the same time, you may be killing them. We're just saying there may be a better way of helping them, but yeah. that may be uncomfortable for yourself, and that's the bit you may have to address. Yeah, and that's the learning. That's the new way, isn't it? It's like you can't, mm. you can't help somebody if you don't know what you're talking about. It's like you said earlier. There are loads of people out there that have got opinions, you know, that that you can go to. You know, you're not, you're struggling with your mental health and suffering with depression. You can go and ask somebody for help. Some people don't know what they're talking about. You know, you, some people could quite. Some of the suggestions that people can make could, could kill you. You know. So what you have to do is, you know, I, I see it all the time, you know, when people are, who are suffering with mental health or dual diagnosis, you know, and somebody will tell them, you know, oh, in my opinion, you don't need those tablets, you know, and it's like not, it's nobody else's, it's nobody else's business um, if somebody takes tablets for their mental health. It's between them and their doctor, you know, so you have to be mindful of who you ask um, for support. You know, and that's why I always encourage people to do some due diligence. Start my 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 first thing to say to people is do some research. Look at this as you are going to have to embark on a life changing experience like your loved one is. For your loved one to stay well, they're going to have to embark on a new way of life. For you to stay well, so are you. But do some due diligence, do some research, go to the CODA website now is absolutely phenomenal i don't know if you've ever looked at it recently lester but it is a great starting point oh honestly i don't know who who's done their their redesign Mm. but they've done a splendid i i toff my hat to them they've done a splendid job and on Mm. the coda website they've got lots of stories um lots of podcasts lots of um, written stories that you can read that uh, and again look for the similarities and not the differences so the families are harder to help than the addict the addict knows what their problem is the addict hands usually is holding their hands up going yep yeah, i've got a drug problem i realize i need to stop taking drugs the family members don't know that they've got a problem yet they still want to blame their addict. So helping so that for them to get some realisation. And, and, and I think there could be, I think there's sometimes, there could be sometimes sort of some truth in that in the sense, I think there's often a difference between somebody that 
um, gave birth to somebody that developed an addict problem. They did then somebody that actually chose an addict to be in yeah. a relationship with. If you, you know, if you chose an addict to be in relationship with, even before they were, you know, you could really see that they've got a problem. There's still, I think, maybe something going on inside you long before you chose that person. Like I think you, you said yourself, your father was uh, a drinker, and so that yeah. would have set up some uh, issues in you. That you know, it's funny because you'd always think that people would go and look for the opposite, but it's not. They usually go and yeah. look for the, yeah. the 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 same as that they're used to. And I think the thing is, is You've worked in this sector for a long time. I've worked in this sector for a long time. And what I've realised is every single person that I meet is unique. Every single person. Mm. If they've got an addiction, I look at family recovery as if the family member's got an addiction to the addict and their drug of choice. And you know how hard it is for the addict to give up drinking drugs. It's as hard for the family member, if not more so for especially the mothers. Mothers of addicts uh, are by far the, the hardest people to help. So everybody's difficult to help. Said, there's nothing not... worse than a guilty mother. A guilty mothers are the worst of all. Well, and often, obviously it's varying degrees, but sometimes I get mothers that come who've had addictions themselves who've got kids who've then gone on to have addictions. Yeah, they're, the, off, and, they're often the oh, guilty ones. Oh, gosh, off the scale with guilt and shame. And they, they do do a lot of mm. self-harm to themselves, you know. And it is about, it's just about connecting them, helping them find those people, their community, their people, their, their, their women if it's women, their men if it's men, helping them find their people. Like you said, all it takes is one or two people to say the right things, to speak those words into your life that touch your soul. But I do believe that family members need to have reached a rock bottom too. They have to have got to a point of despair and brokenness like you've never known brokenness before. Because a mother will walk over hot again, coals. I, I, I see that again, I sort of concluded over the years that Again, things have to get so bad um, because the interventions aren't there. Because society really still hasn't got a good understanding of what addiction is. They keep thinking it's a drug and alcohol problem. And and I think that, so there's very little education. And again, in 33 years of being in addiction treatment, there's very little understanding and very little education for the not for um not even for the people with addiction never mind the families it's almost like there's zero support again they can go to great groups like Al-Anon, coda um and, and and again there's a wealth of information but again i think society should be promoting look if we can there's all this information that you're really going to need to understand if you're going to help to make a difference. If you're going to, look, it's, we're not saying don't do interventions. We're just saying that there's interventions that are proven to work better. And But you're yeah. going to have to learn them because naturally you're going to do A, B and C 
because that's what makes sense, but it doesn't work. Um, so what you've got to learn isn't a natural response. You're going to have to almost go against your natural response to say, you know, I think like like you said, that moment when you decided I've got to leave, that was literally sort of going against your natural response, which would be to stay and fix. That, that is, yeah. that, which I've done, that I've tried for years. and to be learned, but it's not being taught. <laughs> yeah. And and everybody that I often hear that's, that shared a story that you shared, it's often the same elements that they went to either a rehab where they learnt this information, they went to 12-step meetings where they learnt this information, they went to Al-Anon where they learnt this information, but it was the learning of this information that started to make the difference in their life. And it's the continuity. Especially for them that wanted yeah. to actually act upon that information. Yeah. And it's for the family, it's exactly the same as it is for the addict. It isn't a case of just knowing. It isn't about knowing, oh, oh, so I am an affected other and my life has become unmanageable. It's about them engaging in a process where they commit to going to meetings, to get involved, to have people around them, other people that they can help. Because what happens in the helping, in the being of service is <clears throat> we're reminded, aren't we? on a daily basis of the enormousness of our powerlessness that's the whole purpose of being of service is we're reminded on a daily basis every time we help somebody just how absolutely powerless we are over everything and that we do need a, a, a power greater than ourselves whatever you choose to call that power is entirely up to you but whatever that power is we do need something bigger than all of us to help us and that is the purpose of getting involved in a family fellowship. It's exactly the same. They need reminding on a daily basis because I can guarantee you, if you're a family member and you're affected by somebody else, if you're, you've got codependency issues, which most family members have got, which most addicts have got, actually, once you take away the drink and the drugs, often beneath addiction is codependency. So there's a lot, a big, a huge piece of work everybody should be doing Um on themselves around codependency because you know drink and drugs are just a mask aren't they um but codependency issues i think everybody's got up to a certain degree underlying issues there but going and getting involved in those sorts of fellowships you're reminded when you go to those meetings of what you need to be reminded of by going to those meetings you know if i don't go to meetings lester i'm 25 years right <clears throat> clean from drug addiction and alcoholism, 28 years in family recovery. If I don't go to meetings, I don't get reminded of who I am and where I've come from and the enormousness of what, what, what God has set me free from. But I can take back at any moment. Do you know what I mean? I can take back my dysfunction and my codependency. God's given me two children. Are you know what I mean? It doesn't take... Don't that those all those parents that we we're talking about that struggle with their kids? I get it now. I've got two kids. What would I do if one of my kids came to me and said I need help? You know, there's so much work to be done. So and it's I, I, even though I'm 25 years clean from drug addiction and alcoholism and 28 years in family recovery. I'm still evolving. I'm still becoming this beautiful person that God's put me here to be. 
you know, I still need help. Like you said, I, I don't need many people these days. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I need therapy. So I'll go and get it. You know, sometimes I need specialist help. You know, I'm just gone through the perimenopause, maybe a bit too much information. Nobody quite prepares you for that as a woman. So I needed to get some help with that. You know, um, there's loads of things that we need help with. We're evolving. But if I don't go and plug into those communities that can help me, I don't get the continuity in care that I need. And that's what recovering communities offer, isn't it? It's continuity in care. It's not just knowledge. Yes. It's not just going and having a therapy session and going, oh, well, I'm educated now. I know about perimenopause or about addiction or about whatever. It's about going and having that continuity in care. Would you, have you got any books that you've come across on these subjects that have come to mind that you think are pretty but good for people great... to read? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I've got an arsenal of books. Can I take you with my laptop? I'll show you my books. I can't think of titles. I've, don't forget, I'm perimenopausal, so my brain's a little bit... I can't, my memory's terrible. I'm going to show you around a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the hub. This is... You see that heart up there? That's what's at the heart of what yeah. we do. Love. Absolute yeah. tons of yeah. stuff. And then we've got all these beautiful books here, <laughs> which I've collated over the years. I'm just trying to think of ones that I've personally found really, really helpful. Breathing Underwater is very good for those that are in recovery, that are looking to understand the spiritual side. Have you ever heard of that one, Breathing Underwater? Yeah. I've heard of it. I've Richard not read Rohr. it. Richard Raw, very good, is um, um, a Jesuit monk. It's beautiful. He, he explains it very, very well. Breathing Underwater, that's highly recommended. And obviously, Codependent Anonymous book. So it's like the, the big book. Um, for CODA. Very, yeah. very interesting stories in there. They do a lot of inner child work at CODA. Um, and one of the things that I've been doing recently with our volunteers, so don't forget our volunteers, we train them up to become peer mentors and then we train them up to become recovery, we call them recovery coach connectors, so that they're basically connecting people to... Where's my book gone? Somebody better not have robbed it. Oh, no, they've not. This one's very good. It's called Understanding Your Inner Child and Overcoming Addiction. And it's really relevant to... And that's by um, a therapist called um, Nathan Jones, who's a great... I don't know if you know him. Do you know Nathan Lester? No. He's a great guy. No. So, Oh, he's a lovely guy. You should get him on one of your podcasts. Wonderful, wonderful man. He's written this recovery oh. manual um, and workbook. I, I think it's just about going to be and ready on Amazon soon. When you say recovery, soon. that's from... In a child trauma. When you trauma. say recovery, that's from, from childhood trauma. Yeah. That, that, that's, so, so this that's is a big piece of That's mostly what child work, work deals with. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's yeah. his workshops are really interesting because it isn't all about addiction. Um, you know, like, you know, you must have met family members who have come from very wealthy families. 
um, whose kids have gone what? on to become addicts. You know, yes. there isn't there isn't anything that stops people becoming addicts. Um, but um, Nathan talks in that book uh, and in his workshops around about um, all of the different types of personalities that 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 kids have and they develop and boredom is one of them you know so kids are often palmed off with money and like oh you know here's another xbox here's another you know here's another hundred quid go out and play with your mates you know here's the kids it, it's neglect it is traumatic it's quite a traumatic experience for them so it's, yeah. it's like you said they're looking for people to care they're looking for people to say are you all right do you want a cuddle you know, or whatever their love language is. Um, my other books are really yeah, well, helpful. It kind of leaves you leaves you pretty vulnerable in life if you end up developing that kind of um, I don't know what the word would be like. Sort of, I very much look at my nervous system that I've been trying to kind of protect it and satisfy it, and uh, because it. I felt for me, because again, I think having addiction and being dysfunctional are two different things. If you've got the both of them, you're in big trouble. But the most difficult one to treat, I think, is the dysfunction. But you can't treat that until you deal with the addiction. And most people opt to not deal with that dysfunction. They try, or if they they what they want to, they want to learn to um, live with it rather than try and heal from it because it's too traumatic to order to, to heal from it and again i think that's a lot to do with our society is very backward if you were surrounded by people that were dealt with a lot of trauma uh, that would really be helpful to you because i think because i'm a believer that the environment kind of causes it but the solutions also in the community which again i think you've discovered that which is why you you set up kennedy street to create a community because that environment itself can be very um, healing to people because it it's long term it take it can take a long time yeah it was what was missing at the beginning when we started our journey it was what was missing there was no there was nowhere to go there was nobody to ask you know we went to the doctors and doctors said mm. um he needs to stop drinking you know um there was no one to talk to about it. No, like I say, nobody suggested. The doctors didn't suggest going to AA. They certainly didn't. Suggest, if it wasn't for that Northern Irish nurse at the hospital, I don't know what where that where I'd started. I think the most important thing is start somewhere. You know, for anybody, if it, if if it was one top tip, I would leave you with, it would be if you if you're a family member. And you do have an affected other. Start by reaching out and asking for help to either Alanon, Naranon, Coanon. Uh, there's Coda. You know, look at yourself. There's another one which is Eckhart Tolle, which is the Power of Now, which is a really good. It's about starting the journey. Because the journey doesn't finish too, once you know. That book's too slow for me. Is it? I'm waiting, yeah, I'm waiting for a power of right now to come out. Ah, instant gratification, <laughs> please. <laughs> this is a really good one as well. So this is 
It's called Understanding Addiction Through the Eyes of a Child, uh, through the uh, re- Understanding Addiction and Recovery Through the Eyes of a Child. So it's mm. a really powerful book for like mothers or fathers that have been affected by addiction um, for them to help their kids because often family members that when you've got kids you you often start then parenting through guilt and giving over trying to overcompensate with kids because you've not been you've not been there so they start you know kids get away with murder don't they you know and then they understand again i think even when i think your parents in addiction are very selfish which makes you feel not cared for but then when they often come into recovery and they're full of guilt, then even when they're trying to be kind and nice to you and repair the damage that they've done, it's still very coming from a very selfish place. And, you know, it's still more about them than you. And I think that can take yeah. a few years for someone to, 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 to figure that out. It's like I learned about grace, but that seems to be such a very difficult concept to understand what the, the, what grace actually is and how you give it and receive it. Most of us are trying to earn our way back. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can still be a very selfish thing. So even in 12-step recovery, I learned very quickly that helping other people really did make me feel good about myself. But it was still coming from a selfish place. And I think it's a bit of a trap. We call it two-stepping that you don't drink and you help other people. It's a, it's a blissful state and it's quite good as far as it goes. But when people tend to get around five years in recovery, it stops working. And if you haven't done the 12-step program, and the difference being the 12-step program starts relieving you of self and that starts bringing down the, the discomfort and the pain. And so I realised there was this massive change but a very important change in my life and that i described it like this i used to help people to get out of self which is kind of like that's all you're getting from it but then i learned to help people now i help people because i'm out of self and they're very different but i tend to grow when i'm helping people because i'm out of self i just tend to get relief when i'm helping people out of self and then it's not so nice for the other people because I'm just almost getting, I was going to say relieving myself on them, which I often say, but I didn't want to say that here. I'm getting relief. <laughs> getting, and, and Well, it making amends is like that. It's like, look, you just come and relieved yourself on me and you've left yeah. feeling all happy because you said sorry, but I feel terrible, which I don't think, you know, I'm, a, I'm a big step nine person i don't think most people understand or do step nine they don't understand how important it is so they don't really do it and so they don't really get the benefits from it but how important it is to learn how to make corrective measures because i don't want to be helping people just for myself all the time it's um and you find guilty people generally do that and their children stay angry at them because it's like even though you're being kind you're still, it's about you, not me. You still don't yeah. you care more about you than me. And that's yeah. such an unhealthy relationship. It really is. And I think going through that 12-step process is about learning to, to, to give altruistically, unconditionally. It's like when you realise that actually you've been saved for a reason and the reason is so you can be of service to, to others, 
um it isn't optional really i mean people make me laugh sometimes when they're like oh yeah you know i'm thinking of being of service it's like that's for me that's been the whole purpose of my recovery is i've been set free from me yeah. <laughs> actually yeah. so i can be a, a real service to to god you know and and the when i the work i do is i do, i don't take any glory for it really if it works out it works out great if it don't work out it don't work out you know if it does work out i give the glory to god because i think well god provides god provided this hub god provided them books god provides the tea and the coffee via marks and spencers and gales but you know if if I don't take responsibility for people's recovery. They have to do that. That's between them and, and, and their God, their higher power. Um, but it is so important that you do engage in a process and and trust the process. Because often people don't. They just keep going round and round and round and round in this absolute insane merry-go-round of denial if you if you want to read something really interesting if you're out there and you are affected by somebody else's uh, drinking or drug taking go onto the Al-Anon website and read the merry-go-round of denial that is a really good starting point to be honest because that is that is the loop that you're in if you if you just keep Enabling, enabling, enabling. You're just in. You're just in this absolute merry-go-round of because denial. It, where... Even like putting it back in there that they're saying, yeah, but I am helping. I am giving. I am self-sacrificing. I am. But again, I think when it's coming out of self, it's kind of like that. You're willing to give sort of fat, fat kid cake. And you think that's kind of loving, but it's really not. Ultimately, you're causing harm and that's going to lead to their death but it makes you feel good and not to give it to them would make you feel bad again, so again when you sort self, of look back it? and say why am i it's all oh, well, i'm a i'm sold on that 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 you know the root of all our problems is self and again like i think like you quite um quite well just explained that it's that, that that God is love and love is forgiving, but there is a way to give, and and it's learning. That's the process that I shouldn't give. And again, in AA, I got it's got a great line. It says, "Given isn't the most important thing; it's knowing when and when not to." Is but sometimes that I want to give because it would satisfy myself, but I know they're going to be angry at me or people aren't going to like me if I don't yeah. give, but not giving is the right thing. And mm. that can cause a bit of a struggle with your ego. And I think the more that I've learned to um, to figure out when and when not to give, because it's, it's easy for me to give, but that doesn't mean I'm actually helping. It's just yeah. trying to satisfy myself again. And it's hard. Yeah, That's a difficult especially yourself, with people who've got you? children and... Yeah, I think that's the the hurt, isn't it? And I think so. When you address your own hurt, then you, there's not such a strong need to do that because I feel so sad for um, people that again, I, you know, in recovery, I do see it more. I think men have it. It's just a lot more hidden and a lot deeper. But certainly, some of the women that I've known in recovery, 
that have children that have gone through their addiction and um, the, the, the difficulties, the, the challenges that they face of restoring them relationships that again is it can be such a difficult process and again without a lot of understanding and a lot of support I think it can be almost impossible because I've often seen that these children get into their teens and become very aggressive very angry towards their parents and rightly so they've been terribly let down you know they've been abused you know the parents didn't do what parents should do and protect them and care for them um, but I've seen them ladies working through that terrible guilt but without constantly trying to fix their children from the guilt and even to the point I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've seen in this world it's almost Christ-like where the children are being so abusive and so aggressive and, and I see the the mother's almost with their head down, letting their child abuse them, which isn't right. But they're like, if that's what you need to do, you know, when they when they finally take the full responsibility for their part in it and say, do you know what, like, I deeply regret how my illness has affected you. But still, yeah. and, what are and you to be honest, do this is heal? why the kids need help. The kids do need help. I mean, mm, there's a great time. fellowship called Alateen. I don't know if you've ever heard an Alateen speaker. Oh, my yes. gosh. If Oh, I'll it's tell you what. But it's also absolutely empowering. And it it mm. it's heartbreaking in the sense that, yeah, these kids have been through a lot. But what's remarkable and absolutely miraculous is that they've actually come through and gone do you know what actually i'm not gonna let that narrative that narrative has shaped my life but it's not gonna define my life anymore and that's what recovery gives you it gives you that clarity yes of course we we're all shaped by our story but you know it that our story doesn't have to define our future we define our future with god's help you know yeah, well, I think we, it's, that, it's like that when you feel powerless. Sorry, when you feel powerless, that that your ego or yourself becomes your higher power, and then that's not going to go well. No, um, that just gets you in trouble. But then when people find more trouble, well, yeah, because well, you because you're going to look for power in the wrong places. Yeah, and, and even like being horrible to people is trying to take away their power to increase your own. And I think yeah. when you learn that there's a power that is greater than yourself and you discover how you produce that power, then that's more of a preferable process to be engaged in in life, I think. is um, And I think that's for people like us that have discovered there is a power greater than ourselves. You know, we might call it God, whatever you want to call it, but I'd rather attach to that power because I'm... I'm not powerless anymore. I've yeah. become powerful and, over my recovery and, and I don't need to... My mum and dad never had the power and so keep trying to get it from them. Other people haven't got my power. You know, they. I can give it to them very easily. I choose not to these days whenever possible. Mm. I found a power that's inside myself 
that's greater than myself. That's your source. That's your. It's that's like your source. new source. It's it's a renewed source, isn't it? On a daily basis, we get renewed daily. Yeah. And and like you, you know, I mean, it does make me chuckle a little bit when people get so caught up on the, you know, the God thing. I call my higher power God. But you know what? I really don't mind what anybody calls their higher power or that that power. For me, that that power of love is a higher power. You know, I had to keep it that simple at the beginning. Healthy love, not not dysfunctional love, not codependent love, not where I want to crawl in someone's skin and live their life for them, but a healthy, loving, like productive love that that's going to set me free, is going to set you free. You know, but people get so caught up on what we call that power, that love, you know, People say to me, I always oh, the God thing that puts me off going to meetings. I said, look at it as good orderly direction. Do you need any of that? That's what was said to me. Do you need any yeah. good orderly direction? I was like, I need shit tons of that stuff. So they said, right, well, go to these groups and find some good orderly direction through these people that you're going to meet and take what you want and leave what you don't. It's simple as that, really. If we can simplify this process, but I do think there's a lot of work to be done, um, Lester, out there. I think there's a lot of people that are really not living their best lives. You know, they are caught up in the this whole dysfunction of, uh, you know, relationship. And they're not having a relationship with themselves. They're not certainly not having a relationship with a power greater than themselves. But they're not, have, ultimately, they're blocked. We call it, don't we, in recovery, which is you pl- block from the um, sunlight of the some like the universe yeah. the spirit of the universe that's it yeah claire i'm going to start to finish up but one thing i don't think we've heard about and i'd like to hear about is your relationship with your husband since after the priory and your life a little bit about your life since you've come both because again it's nice you both come into recovery the hours the last so you're saying 25 years how's that been no. for you i can't believe it oh my god how long have <laughs> you got it's been amazing and considering considering that the fact of the matter is is i wouldn't have i, I wanted this man to die preferably quickly <laughs> at the end of I, I would have preferred for at the end of his drinking at the end of before he got well I really just, the the pain that he was in, and I loved him that much that I thought it's just going to be better that he dies. You know, it would be less pain for him because the painful life he lived. Today he's a different man. He's 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 the kindest man, the the most loving man you could ever meet. We've got an amazing relationship. We don't live inside one another's skin. I get on with my life, he gets on with his life. We come together to have moments of beauty. Um... He's a very successful actor still for the pennies, for the Lely Kellys. That's what we used to tell the children when they were little. I'd say, where's daddy gone? I'd say, he's gone to work to get the pennies for the Lely Kellys. Lely Kellys are very expensive shoes for little girls. But he works so hard. (laughs) He is the kindest man you would ever meet. He he still goes to meetings. He still works a 12-step programme. He he loves his life today. Of course, he, he struggles, as I do. We're human beings. We're not meant to not struggle. We miss one another immensely. But he's an actor and I run a charity, you know. So 
also says thanks God for FaceTime. We FaceTime maybe four or five times a day. We don't go to the same meetings, Lester. I'm not one of the, these couples that when, you know, when he's home, he'll come to meetings with me and I'll go to meetings with him. Right from the get-go, I was told by my sponsor, you don't go to meetings with your husband. It's That's very codependent behaviour. You find your meetings, let him find his. Um, and, and we... I'd have done anything that, that that woman had told me to do at the beginning because she was my, she was really, she loved me and she still does love me. Um, and she was guiding me. She was offering me support and some structure and some healthy structure. So we don't live inside one another's skin. I love him and his recovery and he gets on with it. I don't take his inventory, even though I did try very, in the early days, I used to try and do his inventory for him. Um, but because he's got, because he's found himself and because he knows who he is now. You know, in the early days when I'd get start try to get busy and get involved in his recovery, he'd say, listen, I love you dearly, but I don't need you to do my recovery for me, so you don't even have to try. This is between me and God, and I'm on a path and I'm doing all right. So, so we learn to, to communicate differently, you know. We've got a beautiful, absolute... Is the light of my life. I've got two beautiful children that we got in recovery that were IVF babies, so we had to work really hard for them. But again, the greatest thing you can, that uh, one of the most profound things that you you can tell an addict is that they can't do something. And when we first got into recovery, we were told that we would never, we can't have children. It's like, do you know that we're both in recovery? We're going to do everything we can to be mm. able to get babies now because you just told us we can't have them. So we ended up going and having IVF babies. So they're both little test tube babies originally. Amazing little things. They're 17 and 19. For me, they they are wonderful, wonderful, um, wonderful children of two recovering addicts. And, they, and both of them will say, you know what? The greatest, one of the greatest gifts you and Daddy has ever given us is shown us that it's that people that it's okay to not be okay, for one, and for two that people can and do get well, uh, and that recovery is possible, you know, because there's not a lot of talk out there about, especially young people. There's not a lot of talk about recovery. There's a lot of talk about addiction, and we've never shied away from it with yeah. the kids. We've we've always been really honest, age appropriate. But with you know, when they were little, and we'd say, and they'd say, "Why don't you drink that purple juice like Anna's daddy does, like which was red wine?" I'd say, "Oh, mummy's got an allergy to it." If, you know, like Ben at school had got a peanut allergy. You know, if he eats peanuts, he goes, it breaks out in funny rashes, doesn't he? Mummy's a bit like that, so that's why she doesn't drink the the, the red juice. But then as they got older, we we. We're more honest, you know. Both our kids know that we took it to the to the nth degree, um, and they've they've been educated. So I don't know what's going to happen to them. They both do like a drink, but they don't drink like me me, me or the daddy does. Like last night, my eldest daughter came back from university. She's at Bristol University. Kevin's away at the moment. He's floating around the um, Caribbean on a cruise liner performing um, Rock of Ages. No, We Will Rock You, the musical about Queen. And my eldest daughter came back from university yesterday, so treated us to a burrito 
from got delivered for dinner and she said oh I, I fancy a beer with my burrito so I said all right sweetie well the, obviously we don't keep alcohol in the house so she went out and come back with two bottles of beer and her and her sister sat at the burrito and and this bottle of beer lasted them all night and it's still I'm still staggered when I, I, I look at them and I go wow, you two just weird drinkers <laughs> one of them had a party the other week and they had two bottles of wine and they still had half a bottle left when the old friends had left like who are yeah. these children but they my wife's they, like they, a jamaican really... and, and when i go to parties sorry when i go to parties they, they they bring the alcohol in and it's like a few cans and a couple of bottles and i'm doing the math and thinking that's not gonna do there's and I'm worried. I'm thinking I'm going to have to go and get some more alcohol. And at the end of the night, which is about five, six in the morning, there's at least half to three quarters of it left. <laughs> I know. Staggering. Weirdos. Yeah. Yeah, they Honestly, have a great time. I really... Yeah. Yeah. But, but our kids... I mean, our kids are really, really knowledgeable and they talk to me about it. You know, like when the, the eldest was going to first have a drink, she sat me down and she said, Mummy, I want to talk to you about, I'm going to have a drink tonight at a party and I just want to know how you feel about that. <laughs> I was like, bless her. I said, that's very kind yeah. of you, sweetie, to chat. She said, I just wanted to make sure that you wouldn't be upset if I came back a bit drunk, a bit, a bit giggly, she said. I said, I really yeah. appreciate you asking me, but no, I, of course I don't mind. You go and fill your boots, precious. Um, I know that I'll always be here. I mean, I don't encourage them to get absolutely pie-eyed where they need lifts, but, you know, on one occasion she rang me up from a party and she said, oh, mummy, we're, 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 I can't remember where she was, somewhere like Lewis. We're at Lew in Lewis at a party. Um, we can't get the train home and one of the girls' dads has offered to come and pick us up but he's had a drink he's in the pub and he said he'll come and pick us up she said and i don't want to get in the car with him to be honest because i don't know how much he's had to drink so i said to be honest you've done the right thing i'll come and pick you up don't worry so yeah we've got a really good relationship with the kids open honest kev goes to meetings on his ship so he, he there's a meeting every day on of the ship that he's on anthem of the seas they're called the meetings are called Friends of Bill W, uh, <laughs> 10 o'clock every morning. So he goes to those meetings yeah. on the ship. So recovery has delivered a good life. Oh, the best life. The best life. You know, my mum and dad have both passed away now, but the, I was able to be there for them. I was able to be the daughter that they deserved, not the pain in the arse that I was. The drama queen that, that was like a whirling dervish. I was able to be the beautiful daughter. It was hard. and don't, Anybody shouldn't have to see anybody through dementia. But I saw both of my parents through the, yeah. to the end of life. I was able to be there every day for them and to love them unconditionally. Yeah. Have a laugh. <laughs> so often you can have a laugh, but, yeah. you know, um, recovery is getting me everything. It's worthwhile, isn't it? Yeah, it's not even a... Honest to God, Lester, you know, it's not about the drinking. It's not about the drinking. It's about yeah. the life, the living that we that we get to live. Yeah, I can you do know, it. The beautiful again, I think, lives. Sort of growing up, 
growing up, being ill-equipped to deal with with the world and relationships and learning to get equipped in all of that. And again, making an effort is, you know, I've um, made a big effort to, to deal with my issues and lots of therapy and, like you say, courses and groups and weekends and books and podcasts yeah. and lectures and you know accountability and made a big effort to improve as a person and still maintain my personal identity and be myself it's it's been a lot of work but it has proud of my life and I, and yeah. I do thank recovery and I do thank God and and I feel a bit hurt a lot of the time actually I've got to just say this is that when I'm on like I go on LinkedIn where I think is where I see see you guys and then Kevin getting his 20, 25 or 28 years 25. recently. Congratulations to him for that, because that takes a Thank lot of work. You. And and you're saying for yourself. But you, you just get people that seem angry at the suggestion of 12-step recovery. And I think, I wish they'd listened to more. Look, I know we're not for everybody, but I've got to fly the flag because it's been so good to me. And I see it's so good to so many people, including their families and their children. And yeah. it's like you, you, you feel a bit hurt when they're angry at it, <laughs> like like we're doing something yeah. wrong or saying something wrong because we're suggesting that you can actually be successful without um, drinking and taking drugs. Yeah, and do you know what, I I I too can be sort of touched by those people but these days i just think you know what they they probably don't know they've not been to the places that we've been and had to do the things that we had to do to get well you know i i i will help anybody here and if they don't want to engage in a 12-step process i connect them to cgl cgl gets seven million pound a year to their commission by the government you know they offer them all sorts of different therapeutic routes and smart recovery and act and CBT therapy and this, that and the other. And you know what? I don't go, oh, no, I can't help you. I say, okay, well, I'll connect you to these guys. These guys might, yeah, they're, they're, they're more equipped to help you than I am. I can only give away what I've got. And like you say, we can't, we can't deny the fact that we've had our lives transformed by the 12-step programme. I mean, I am the great, I'm a, like a serious cheerleader for the 12 step. All of the 12 steps, don't matter, wait, there's 33 fellowships around. Start somewhere, you know. And if you need therapy, get some therapy. If you want to go to one of those other groups, go to those other groups. But what I'd say is start the ball rolling, you know. Change is possible. And it's a, and they say in recovery, don't they? In 12 step recovery, they say you get a life beyond your wildest dreams. And you really don't understand the enormousness of that statement until you've got a life beyond your wildest dreams, you know, to be able to just do the things that I do in my life. I can hand on heart say I knew nothing about life and about how to treat people and about how to live life before I got into recovery. It was all very superficial, it was all very shallow, it was all very materialistic. And it, recovery has given me everything. So, yeah, I'm a serious champion. And I have to pray for the ones that, that, that hate 12 steps and pray that they find their, their pathway. But for me, I'm bigger cheerleader. Get my pom-poms out. Cool. 
Well, Claire, I think that's going to leave it there. I just want to say thank you very much for talking to us and uh, would really like to talk to you about some other subjects in the future. Um, I think um, Matt, uh, our man, will make sure that all the links for Kennedy Street, um, uh, they'll be able to find them in the information part of the podcast and uh just want to say again thank you very much god bless and hope to get down there some point and have one of them cheesy sandwiches toasty (laughs) toasty yeah oh thanks lester for having me all right god bless thank you oh god bless lovely